this week, we shine a spotlight on Tom McCarthy, the director of um, Spotlight, and also Timmy Failure mistakes were made. Plus, the usual news and nonsense. On the movie podcast, it feels it might just be turning into a vampire. Saw a strange, fiery ball in the sky today and spent ten minutes hissing at it. Does anyone know what it is? Any ideas what that might be? Answers in a postcard, please. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, This week, coming to you as ever in lockdown. This is now year four of the Lockdown Podcast, but I think we're getting there. We're we're slowly but surely getting the hang of it. Uh, And I'm joined once again by three colleagues of such lethal cunning our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. I'm trying a different pronunciation of your name this well, week. I appreciate to, it. It sounded very Irish. Just to make it interesting. And this, this fiery ball in the sky, given the way 2020 is going, it's probably a comet, right? <laughs> I mean, we've literally had, we've literally had uh, the US Air Force release videos of their encounters with UFOs. We have murder hornets yes. spreading across the world. And obviously, the whole other thing. I mean, I feel like it's the natural next step. Michael Sorry. Gove in a position World. of power, murder hornets, that you know, basically everything that was foretold in the book of Revelation is is, is here. Yeah. yeah. Super good. Super, super good. Super good. But uh, yes, the orange ball in the sky is exciting me. It is exciting me. What is it? I wish to run towards it. Uh, do you, Ben Travis, also have that urge? I do. I've been observing the skies. There seems to be some sort of day orb but also some kind of night orb that they sort of swap around and one of them's kind of cold and gray and one of them sort of bright and yellow um Mm. i mean hopefully once we've got this whole covid thing under control we can start looking into like what is going on up there maybe Mm. find out what's happening once and for all would be just just good to know Night Orb looked spectacular the other night, really did. The uh, Super Night Orb, I believe it was called. Is that what it was? Yeah. Okay. Uh, James Dyer is also on the podcast, which is nice, I guess. Hello, Jimbo. How are you? I'm fine, Chris. I've been really busy this week. It's actually taken a lot of my time to train my army of murder hornets to do my bidding. But, uh, <laughs> I think I've pretty much got there now. So I'm I knew pretty good. it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been trying to train my Michael Gove to... Uh, my is fly, fly. <laughs> I've been We're, unleashing it upon the general populace. It's going very well, has to be said. Um, is it, I don't know, do you find comfort in this or not, that if the sun, and that's this is the beat around the bush, I know what it is, the fiery ball in the sky, it's the sun. Do you think... Well, if that were to explode, mm-hmm. we'd have eight minutes left to live. Mm-hmm. That blows my mind, doesn't it? Yeah. So what, we could watch one Pixar short, but not more than one. Yeah, pretty wow. much. Would we know that we had that time or would it be one of those things where it's so far away that we wouldn't actually see it explode? We would just die and we wouldn't know why, but it would be because many, many I- light years away that happened. This I is a fun know. conversation. It's not really light years away, though. It's okay. <laughs> Helen, I would expect you would know this because you're a proper NASA nerd. But isn't it that the sun will gradually become like a... It expands, doesn't it? become like a red yes. giant. So the mm-hmm. light yes. changes. Yeah. And then it sort of supernovas and then contracts no, 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 into no, a singularity. No, 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 It contracts first. And then oh, when right, it okay. falls in upon itself, I believe that's the supernova. Okay. And then yes. you get the... Supernova isn't thing. until much, much later. But no, it will, it will expand. And in its expansion, it will... I don't believe it will quite swallow Earth. Will it swallow Earth? 
Earth. I've read um, various various different models. It'll definitely swallow Mercury and Venus. Yeah. But and uh, it'll be close enough to obviously scorch all life on Earth by that point. I think this is due next week, maybe the week after. <laughs> the week it's that, or it's moment. a couple of billion years from now. Yeah. It, yeah, something like that. And then it contracts into what I believe is a white dwarf, and Correct. then. And then it'll collapse in amongst itself, in upon itself. It'll become a supernova. Well, I think uh, it becomes a neutron star maybe ooh, first. A neutron it? star. That's so. exciting. Maybe there's different ways it can go because maybe a neutron star can, I think, collapse into a black hole. So maybe I'm getting mixed up here. So, what at what point on the Kryptonian scale of not listening to scientists are we at the moment? Where where are we <laughs> in in terms of your planet is about to explode? What do you know, mate? Piss I off. Mean, I think, I mean, obviously the planet isn't exploding, but it still feels pretty Kryptonian High Council, doesn't it? I mean, I know, that's the sort of thing Trevor Howard would have said back in Superman the movie. <laughs> the planet's not exploding. What's going on? You're exploding. <laughs> Jor-El. What I want to know is at what point do we all get superpowers from being bathed in the light of our yellow sun? Like, I'm still waiting for my Kryptonian powers to emerge. And today, fuck all. Well, hang on. You'd only get powers from the light of our yellow sun if you were Kryptonian. That's the whole point. So, although it doesn't affect us in any way. Would we get superpowers if we went to Krypton and we're still alive? And we, we bathed ourselves in a red son of Krypton. Would that, would that give us reverse powers? But like, I mean, yeah, it'd make us even shitter. That's what it'd do. <laughs> We'd get there too weak, too weak. Limited power. <laughs> would the um, Kryptonians be amazed at the fact that we could just hold kryptonite and be completely fine? Would they think that was actually kind but of it's amazing? it's kryptonite to them, Ben. <laughs> it's just, it's just earth. It's just like the ground. It's just like, it's like holding a bit of mud. <laughs> Ooh. You could, you could do that. This has gone very Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> I didn't quite expect that, if I'm honest with you. But uh, but yeah, I was just I was just speculating on like so. Okay, someone who knows this shit can write in and tell us, slide it by DMs, tell us on Twitter or whatever. If the sun were to explode, we'd have eight minutes. The eight minutes for the light. So basically, it takes eight minutes for the light from the sun to reach Earth. So and because nothing can travel faster than light, would we know? Would we see the sun explode and then go, oh, Christ, well, we've got eight minutes to go? Or because we're seeing the sun from eight minutes ago, would we not know until the, the jig was up for everybody? I feel like somebody would probably have noticed the sun was about to explode. Like, I feel there'd be warning signs, yeah. like a sort of giant ticking <laughs> clock would appear on its surface. And well, Matthew be McConaughey, kind of, presumably, at some point, would communicate through us with some, the library of something. Yeah. <laughs> if Jack Reacher book falls off my bookshelf from behind, then I, I know, I know that the, the shit is getting real. <laughs> Danny Boyle's team would be up there, you know, figuring shit out for us, and Mark Strong oh. would be trying to stop them. Um, Within that eight minutes, that is enough time for Dom Toretto and the family to mobilize and to go and stop the sun from exploding and then we'd all sit and enjoy a nice ice cold corona you know the nice the drinkable kind he lives his life a quarter of a light year at a time (laughs) well of course i mean we've heard this week tom cruise might literally be going into space we joked about it it's coming true so it's it only makes sense that the fast and furious team would be close at his heels can you believe that that news came out at the precise point that elon musk and grimes were having a baby Grimes is having Elon Musk's baby, and he is confirming that he's sending Tom Cruise to space. That's I mean, the thing that happened I mean, this that week. That wasn't the weirdest thing <laughs> that happened 
in Elon Musk's <laughs> and Grimes' orbits this week. Um, you know, the, the the name they gave that baby is X I A twelve. Is is I, I how you pronounce it? Yeah, because she did a follow up tweet explaining mm. what all of it meant, and then there was a typo in it, so he replied to her tweet correcting the typo and then she replied to him saying i've just had major surgery please forgive my typos it was an extremely like weird insight into their relationship well i mean congratulations to them and to baby (laughs) xia12 who i'm sure will grow up to be a fine robot (laughs) indeed indeed we wish everybody all the best uh right Shall we get into the, the main show? Because we don't want to be one of those podcasts to spend the first 10, 15 minutes just faffing around um, before actually getting into the, the main thrust of the matter. Uh, so it is time for our brand new section, the beloved of Helen and James section, yeah. uh, which <sighs> is the fact section. This week, it is going to be known as Birds of Prey and the fact-tabulous emancipation of one Chris Hewitt. And uh, the idea is very, very simple. Every week, Helen and James and the person in a rotating fourth chair, who this week is Ben, back for a second helping uh, of lockdown podcasting, uh, try to impress me with an incredible, arcane and obscure movie fact, ideally one I don't know. And then I award points to the winner. I believe that it is two points apiece, isn't it? At the moment, everybody's who's keeping score. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure Helen is on two. James is on two after his Romeo and Juliet uh, fact, and then last week Alex Godfrey, he won, didn't he? He won with his Goodfellas thing. So yes, we're now on two, two, two. I believe. Again, write me right in and correct me if I'm wrong. So let's start with Jimbo this week. Jimbo. Well, With the look of a man of a panicked look of a man who hasn't prepared. <laughs> no, as as suggested last week, my armies of uh, of murder bees and murder wasps and murder hornets and really all sorts of things have gone out and found me facts via the medium of Twitter. <laughs> so uh, Guy Brasher at Guy from Cornwall has chosen me as the avatar for his fact, which he has suggested for this week's thing. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is not nodding. She's done the same thing. Oh, no, I haven't actually, but I could have. I've outsourced, essentially. I have subcontracted my fact. So Guy... Bless him. Guy Brasher has given me a TV fact. And this works for me quite well because it enables me to <laughs> it enables me to at once Double deal with this horrific segment that you on. make me do, but also enables me to plug the pilot TV podcast available every Monday oh, while I do it. So, you know, it's a win-win-win-win-win. Anyway. For whom? <laughs> for all of us, Chris. Not for, for anyone us, Chris. listening. <laughs> so, as Guy points out, the TV show Friends is a very popular TV show. Oh, so popular, in fact. I'm back on board. Friends. I like Friends. Go. It's Carry a Friends on. fact. It's a Friends fact. The Friends cast are earning an estimated $10 million per year because people are still watching Friends all day, every day. But obviously, not everyone knew this would happen all the time. So, when they were doing this show, when they were doing this show, they put together the set for Central Park. And one of the things in Central Park, apart from the very attractive little band area and the sofas and whatnot, they had a fully working professional barista edition coffee machine in Central Park sitting there. And because the production designer clearly takes stuff very seriously, they wanted to make sure they were using it properly. So they had everyone in place and they said to all the extras, does anyone know how to work this coffee machine? Because they clearly had no idea. And one extra went, uh, yeah, I work in a coffee shop. I can do it. She was like, brilliant, brilliant. Come here, come here. Stand in front of the coffee machine, make coffee. So, okay, fine. So they bring this extra, they put him in front of the coffee machine. He works it. It's great. Now, he can work the coffee machine, so he gets asked back. 
I think I know where this is going. I think you may well do. Right? In which case, you already know it, which means I don't win. But it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. No, I'm going to plow on. I'm going to plow guess. on. So, so. Is it James Michael Tyler? So. So. <laughs> is it Obviously, comfy? extras get paid more when they get a line. So, so. Because he comes back every week and he's working the coffee machine. He's very reliable and they like him a lot. They say, oh, have it's a Gunther. line. So he gets a line. He gets a line. And eventually, they like the way he gets a line. So they give him a storyline about how he fancies Rachel. <laughs> It's James Michael Tyler who plays it's Gunther. It's Gunther. It's Gunther. This is literally Gunther. So Gunther, Gunther was an extra, and the only reason he got the speaking part is because he can work a coffee machine, uh, and he got elevated as an extra. His hair is white because a friend of his was trying out some stylish stuff and had just dyed the hair, and because he was white and the, his hair was white in the first one, he had to dye his hair every month for however many years he did this. He could never have his normal hair colour back, and so he was, I think, less pleased about that. But apparently, and I have not fact-checked this part of this, but apparently, Guy assured me that the friends obviously still get 10 million a year for <laughs> this thing apparently gunther pulls in 150 grand every year in repeat fees from friends what he's the highest oh, paid so barista in the world is what guys say <laughs> that's a lot of starbucks it's a lot mm. of starbucks but bless him the story of gunther wow, wow. okay um Okay. I fact-checked this to an extent in that I found an interview with him and he seemed to corroborate most of it. So we'll just assume all of it's right. Helen. Well, I'm going to take you all the way back to 1919 because why not? So um, it's a, I'm going to talk to you about a star called Nell Shipman and she kind of got her start in a film called God's Country and the Woman where she played this outdoors woman, um, as you might guess from the title. It was sort of Jack London style kind of story about, you know, hard scrabble backwoods existence. And because that was a big success and, and was a big hit, she got to make a sequel, which she wrote and produced and starred in, um, called Back to God's Country, which is the 1919 film we're talking about. But it was based on a book by a writer called James Kerwood. And he was not impressed with her decision to rewrite his original story that this was based on. Because in the original story, the heroine was a great Dane called Wappy. And she rewrote the story so that the heroine was a woman called Dolores. So he objected to this and um, didn't really have a leg to stand on. He couldn't control that. But what he could control, according to his contract, was where they had to film the movie. And he mandated that they film the film at Slave Lake in Canada, which, if you look on a map, is just below the Arctic Circle. Right. So Shipman and her team bundled up packed up, got on a train and went north and north and north into the Canadian winter into temperatures of minus 40 degrees. Lens would freeze open. You had to leave them outside because if you brought them inside and outside, they would just break in the cold, in the changing temperature. Um, but that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was what happened to her director and her leading man. So they'd all been warned that you shouldn't breathe too deeply uh, when you went outside in this kind of weather because it's what? it's just too cold. You should have like scarves around your head. It's very timely, really. They should have had masks on. But the leading man, who was a guy called Ronald Byram, went outside without his coat on and took a great big breath of the freezing air because he was just trying to show off, I guess. He's about to start singing. Uh, maybe <gasps> so. That would explain a lot. Sadly, <laughs> he froze the tips of his lungs and died of pneumonia. Well, instantly... Well, like, pretty like much. It took tomorrow. him a couple of days. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, the director was Bert Van Tool, who was also um, Nell Shipman's boyfriend at the time. Uh -oh. Don't mention it. They were married. Anyway, he 
was out one day wearing only one pair of socks in his boots oh, and no. he got frostbite oh no uh, which made him actually delusional with pain and he had to be shipped all the way back to san francisco um because the local hospital said they were going to have to amputate and he was refusing to allow that so he basically had to be shipped back and sort of you know bathed his feet in lukewarm water the whole way anyway despite all of this Despite the lens freezing open, um, the frostbite, and the dead leading man, they managed to finish the movie. And that's why The Revenant wasn't as tough as they like to use to think. Yeah, just blood lying in a puddle for two hours, isn't it? Exactly. So, so when you say they finished the movie, despite the fact mm. they had a dead leading man, did they wake yeah. in a Bernie's the whole situation? Was it just a <laughs> complicated um, system I, of police and I believe levers? they were able to shoot around because he'd done a lot of the scenes, you know, sort of interior scenes down south right. beforehand. So they were That's, able to kind of work around it. I'm to be suspicious now. I think that he might have been murdered. Maybe. Maybe. No. This is a really cold case. <laughs> in so many ways. Wow. Okay. So I like. So far, we're only a few weeks into this new this new uh, segment, but already people's different approaches are becoming clear. So James just f- fucks it off at the last minute, outsources to someone on the internet, and then brings in a TV fact. Uh, so, but Helen, Helen, you know, for reasons that will become clear, I'm guessing at some point soon, Helen. Maybe. Maybe. Who can say? Uh, Brings in a whole bunch of obscure facts about movies that are from the olden times and we ain't never heard of nobody in them. Um, but it's interesting because they're good facts. They are good facts. Thank you. Appreciate now, it. Can I correct something I just said? Of course you can. Well, they did have to recast the leading <gasps> man, actually. Okay. Yes. Um, so Wheeler Oakman took over from the sadly deceased Ronald. <laughs> These names are Ronald amazing. Byron. I know. Wheeler they had Oakman. much better names in those days. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, you know, we've, we, as we were we talking about, we're going to be talking about Timmy Failure later on, uh, or I will be. Um, they have like, Winslow Fagley. That's, that's like Wheeler Oakman. That's like today's Wheeler Oakman. Uh, <laughs> but Ben Travis, you know, even back in the 1919, that would have been a sturdy name, Ben Travis. What is your approach to this? This is your second time around. So what's your, what's your, how do you do it? Ben, is your fact about that really old movie, Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you're on the, on the right lines there, you know. My, did, my approach you know is that I actually... Ford improvised, I know. <laughs> <laughs> did you know that film starred someone called Carrie Fisher? She was really good. Um, my approach is that I actually have a fact because last time I didn't prepare a fact and merely played the bass guitar. So I feel like I've <laughs> one-upped myself this week by actually having a fact. Um, and it's a Star Wars fact because I've spent basically the entire week living in a galaxy far, far away between, uh, well, we've been doing the Mandalorian podcast every week. We did loads of May the 4th mm. stuff. I rewatched Rise of Skywalker over the weekend with my partner. We both Why? really enjoyed it because it's really fun. I'm rewatching the prequels at the moment. I wrote a big thing for the website all about the sequel trilogy and how much I love it. Uh, so I'm very much living in Star Wars at the moment. Just to be clear, Ben wrote an op-ed on why the sequel trilogy is the best trilogy in Star Wars. Now, just my take a favorite second. Trilogy. Take a second for that to sink in. <laughs> the sequel trilogy is the best trilogy in Star Wars. Don't at him. You can find that article on EmpireOnline.com. <laughs> to me. Feel free to best do stuff to, to me. <laughs> my personal favorite for various reasons. So yes, feel free to read that and then shout at me on Twitter, which is I, I can shout at you without reading it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sure this isn't your fact. So let's get to the fact. So my fact uh, ties into the sequel trilogy. Uh, I was doing a lot of reading around The Last Jedi and I learned that at one point, Mark Hamill nearly became an actual hermit living on Skellig Michael. Uh, so 
in the shooting of The Last Jedi, obviously loads of the Luke Skywalker stuff uh, on the planet of Acto uh, was shot on Skellig Michael, which is an an island off the coast of Ireland. Uh, the way that they shot, they there was like a helipad on the island, but it was 600 feet below where they were actually shooting. So they had to do a 600 foot climb uh, to the part of the island where they were shooting the film. And Mark Hamill did that climb for the first time and thought, fuck this, I'm not going to climb 600 <laughs> feet up to the top of this island every time we're going to shoot a part of this film. So he proposed that he could actually just live up there, stay in a tent, uh, be a hermit on the island, uh, and he wanted to stay in character while he did it, uh, to be old man Luke Skywalker. To the extent that Kathleen Kennedy actually looked into whether this would be a possibility uh, and went to the Irish authorities to find out if he could actually live on the top of Skelling Michael for a little while while they shot the film. But apparently he wasn't allowed to, and the main reason was that it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, rather than the sheer danger of your sort of semi-leading man living in a tent on top of a wind-battered island surrounded by puffins. Yeah, it's a puffin so, sanctuary, isn't it? <laughs> so, it's a puffin sanctuary, mm. yeah, hence all the porgs, to cover up all the puffins. So yes, that, that was my fact for the week. Yeah, and those uh, those beehive huts wouldn't stand much abuse from modern people. Also, frankly, the caretakers would have kicked him off within five minutes. They'd have had absolutely <laughs> none of that. They would have been fuming. He'd been absolutely sitting there fuming. drinking green milk from the udders of a space cow. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. Right, so. He's <laughs> getting very Irish. Um, good, good facts. Good facts, I think. Now, could I just make a small speech in my defence here that, that I do not believe that my methodology should factor into the judging process <laughs> and i believe all facts should be taken at face value mm. and if that is true then obviously friends facts wins just as a rule because it's friends <laughs> well, so friends no, no, facts no, no, just no. win I, mean, I like i like ben's fact personally because hang you on know, hang on i'm pretty sure that got, was in my feature <laughs> star wars facts surely trump friends facts yeah i mean there was the stuff about daisy ridley throwing up um on the island. I've heard that before, but not the Mark Hamill wanting to move in. Where did you get that from, Ben? Uh, it was from an interview that he did. He was talking With about James the Dyer process in the of uh, issue of Empire magazine that came out for The Last Jedi. Was it? Uh, did you get that story in your issue? No, it was uh, an, is uh, an interview with the Irish Times, I believe. Hmm. This is tough this week, guys. This is tough. Um, I'm going to take the pressure off myself by uh, talking about Star Wars for a little bit. Uh, did you see that they have released the uh, Lego Razorcrest. Have you seen this? I have Ooh. not. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, on pre-order now. It's out in September, and I desperately want it. Uh, it comes with all the little action figures. You get little Mando. You get little Cara Dune. You get little Child. You get little Grief Karga. It's going to be incredible. Uh, so that is available right now. And uh, also, around uh, about Star Wars Day, I watched... The um, the George Lucas talk shows live stream as they went through a Star Wars marathon. George Lucas talk show, I may have talked about it in the podcast before, but it's an improv comedy thing that happens at UCB in New York every month, or at least it did, uh, with Connor Ratliff playing George Lucas and uh, Griffin Newman playing Watto in full costume. And, um, and it's very, very funny, but it's a genuine talk show as well. And so they did a live stream, uh, a Star Wars marathon, including a holiday special and the Endor movies, the Ewok movies. Well, um, so they did all those and it was just I kept dipping in and out of it as they would get different guests and stuff and they raised a lot of money for UCB employees all of whom I think have been laid off uh, in the in the current climate and so it was a great thing but it also got me to thinking 
should we do something like this, but for the MCU? Helen, yes. what do you think? Um, I mean, so what, you want to marathon the MCU yes. and talk about it? Well, you know, my instant reaction is yes. However, I saw, I went and visited Empire when you and Sam Toy and Nick DeSemlin were doing a marathon of Bond movies, which I would say are on average shorter than MCU movies. And you were destroyed by it. Oh, destroyed. Completely destroyed. destroyed. And I'm not sure, you know, we're older now than, I mean, that's a good 10 years ago, Chris. 14. I don't know if we'd, I don't know if we'd survive. Uh, We wouldn't. We wouldn't. Right. Uh, Here's the thing, Helen. It would be 50 hours. (laughs) Minimum. (laughs) 50 hours to do 23 films. And if we were to do it, we'd have to do it before Black Widow. Um, but I'm trying to think, you know, do up. we do it as yeah. two 25-hour chunks and then with a day of rest in between, you could maybe do that. And we do it and it's fun and we have guests dropping in and we have, you know, we do it for charity. I then guess maybe, I could sleep through Guardians uh, of the Galaxy Volume 2. Whoa, hey, steady on, steady the fuck on. If you're going to sleep through anything, it's Ant-Man and the Wasp. We it's all know it's also that, yeah. Although we will be talking about Sonny Birch later on, legitimately. <laughs> I have good yes. reason to talk about Sonny Birch later on. I'm very excited about that. I'm going to write that down in case I forget. But anyway, to this week's fact, the judging. I have made my deliberation and the uh, the decision is in. I'm going to go with uh, Helen this week. Yay! Sorry, fix. fix. I think fair. this is anti-pilot TV prejudice. Oh, I don't know, James. I mean, it's like... You were asked to bring in a film fact, and you have brought in a TV fact. So, immediate disqualification for Jimbo. That's uh, You're lucky I'm not deducting points that you won previously for pretty good film facts. Uh, ben, it was a good fact, um, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, I don't know. That's fair. I'm Helen's not saying that Helen's going to win automatically just for going back into the, the, you know, the, the darkened reaches of, of ye olde cinema. But that was a, that was a good fact. Any, any fact in which two people end up dead, that's good. I'm, and I, I'm only on one board. died. Only one died. One yeah, went mad. One, one died. Lost one went insane. <laughs> okay, bit like the recording of the podcast every week. Just before we move on, I've got one more little Star Wars thing. Has anybody watched the first episode of uh, Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, the sort of behind the scenes Mandalorian making of show? In that, Bryce Dallas Howard has like the ultimate mic drop story. That uh, So the first episode is all about the directors and it's got footage of them all, all the different directors on the series, sort of behind the scenes footage. And there's also a round table where they're all talking together with Jon Favreau about their episodes and their process, all these sorts of things. Obviously, Bryce Dallas Howard is one of the directors on the series, and she tells them all the story about um, she's like five or six years old, and her dad, Ron Howard, took her on a business trip because he didn't want to leave all the kids with his wife. So he's like, I'll take Bryce, I'll bring Bryce with me, and she can just follow along on this trip. Uh, And it was a business trip to Japan, and uh, she joined her dad for dinner, and that dinner was Ron Howard... George Lucas and Akira Kurosawa. Oh my god! So as a five-year-old, she had dinner with that trio of people, and you can see all of the other directors are just like, "What the fuck? That's crazy! It's amazing! It's a really good, uh, really good episode. You should give it a watch." I definitely will. Yeah, because we've not spent enough time thinking and talking about the Mandalorian of late. So. <laughs> Why, yes. I mean, if you haven't listened yet, if you subscribe to our Spoiler Specials channel, you can listen to all seven episodes, because uh, we did the first two together, of our Mandalorian Spoiler Specials. Yes, you can. Highly recommended. Subscribe well, now. moderately recommended. Well, you know, actually, probably best <laughs> leave them. Uh, no, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. All right. Okay. So, well, that is it for this week's 
facts of prey with the factabulous emancipation of one Chris Hewitt. Uh, tune in next week to find out what we're calling it and also to hear some incredible film facts. But Helen has moved ahead on the leaderboard. Mm. I should get a yes. leaderboard. Guys, guys, uh, Twitter guys, you need to up your game. Please send me better facts than Guy's <laughs> fact. Guy, thanks for the help, but it didn't do it. Help yeah, me out, film guys. Facts. Come on, people. Send me your facts. Don't make me work for a living. <laughs> All right, so now it is time to move on inexorably into our listener question for the week. And yes, it is just one question again this week because we've been banging on for so long about Star Wars and people dying of pneumonia. Fun. Um, this week's question is a relation to last week's question, which was about our favourite MCU post credit scenes. And this week... At Janet, not Victoria, on Twitter has asked, what about your favourite post-credit scenes from non-MCU films? Has anyone come close to the success of Marvel with them? Interesting question. Mm. And uh, yes, let's go. Who wants to talk yes. about this first? I would argue that many films have done them very, very well. What Marvel's done in terms of building a world and, and hooking you for the next film that's kind of unique but but there are some comedy films that have done them brilliantly for my money probably the single funniest post credits sting and the thing that started the whole trend is airplane where the guy waiting in the cab for ted to come back says i'll give him five more minutes inspired um obviously mm -hmm. that was built upon in ferris bueller where mm. he told us all to go home and stop waiting around which obviously was then parodied in deadpool so those are some of my favorites uh also a big shout out to 22 jump street yes which canonically the credits include the next i think what was it 15 sequels to <laughs> the jump street franchise and apparently those are all canon and have effectively happened so uh hmm. so bonus points for that um so yeah those are some of my favorites for me the one that immediately sprang to mind uh we're including mid credits in this as well right it's not just post post credits we're doing yeah. mid credits as well uh it has to be fast and furious 6 Jason Statham walks in, blows up Han, and announces that he's going to be in the next film. And then you spend two years waiting for Fast oh. 7, waiting for the third bold, punchy man oh. to enter this franchise and take it to a new height. And that, didn't they have one in Fast 5 as well, where you find out that Letty's still alive? Mm. Letty was mm -hmm. still alive, yeah. But Statham tops that for me. Statham oh, harsh. swaggering into the franchise, ready to steal it in the next one. Glorious. Absolutely glorious. Was the one in Fast Five the last time we saw Eva Mendes? That's correct, mm. yes. I feel like we need to bring her back. She was fun. She's, yeah, she's like the, 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 the last card in the deck, isn't she? In so many mm. ways. If they, if the they get her in. The deck card. Yeah. Oh, hey. <laughs> hey. Yes. Uh, bring back Eva Mendes, because uh, we can all remember the name of her character. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Crank has that, that video game thing, you know, that little 8-bit pixel art video game recreation of the film oh, yeah. that's quite fun uh that's in the credits what else was i thinking of it's not really a sequence but i always loved that moment end of the phantom menace credits where you just hear that single vader breath you know at the end that kind of little bit of foreshadowing i think that's a lovely a lovely touch yes um and then fader appears and tells the audience to go home yes <laughs> what, we're still go home. i'm not in this yeah. i'm not in this for two more films uh what else is there oh um, i really like genuinely like the one at the end of the gray so do you remember how the gray ends spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen the gray wolf puncher the movie so you're not quite sure what happens like he goes in he's in again spoiler skip the spit if you've not seen the gray um he goes into the wolf's lair and you're like right he's fucked he's got little like 
miniature bottles from the mini boys as a little knuckle duster and then at the end of the credits you see him from behind you see his body so you think he's dead you don't really know but he's lying against the body of the alpha wolf and the alpha wolf kind of breathes its last breath so you know that even though he probably died big liam the wolf puncher killed the big bad wolf and i think (laughs) that is worthy of a post-credit sequence see that's that's an interesting one because Jim Mangold was quite vocal as he is. He, uh, he has very robust views about things like this. That he, you know, basically, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he was he was dismissive of films that have post credit stings, uh, which of course is ironic because he directed one that has post credit sting. <laughs> he directed the Wolverine, which has a post credit sting, sets up days of future past and does all sorts of weird retconning. And that was directed by Brian Singer. So not technically uh, a James Mangold sting in a James Mangold film, but he had, he thinks that basically it's just, it's, it's wanking uh, essentially. And it's just showing off and it's, it's pointless. And, you know, but something like that is really interesting because that's the end of the film. Mm. That's the end yeah. of the dramatic arc at the end of the credits after the main film. So, And wasn't it in the trailer? Yes. I feel like I bl- that was, uh, or part of it was in the I trailer. I think the bit where he puts together the, the wolf. Yeah, yeah. like the, the yeah, wolf yeah. puncher bit. That's okay. why everyone called it wolf puncher. Because you see the, the, the final shot of the film, you see him strapping the bottles to his knuckles, yeah. uh, which was, that was a ridiculous thing to put in the trailer. I really like The Grey. Like, it's a flawed film, but I really enjoy it. It's really tense. But yeah, obviously this this... These predated Marvel as we've as we've talked about for a long, long time. The Muppet movie has has one. They you know they came to prominence a little bit in the nineteen eighties, as Helen said. Airplane. I think Ferris Bueller is the one that you know most people will remember. But there are loads that predate the MCU mm. and which which launched in two thousand and eight. Young Sherlock Holmes has one, in which the uh, oh yeah, in which Moriarty is revealed, or at least the you know the one of the characters is revealed to be Moriarty, and that was meant to be setting mm. up some stuff. So. I wish it had. That was a great movie. Yeah. Or at least but a co- good movie. <laughs> but of course, if you didn't stay for the end credits, he could legitimately have said, Did you miss me? <laughs> Did you miss me? Did you miss me? Did you miss me? Did you miss me? To which the answer is resolutely no. Uh, was, but there- the, was the Flash Gordon uh, thing where the guy picks up Ming's ring, was that um, not <laughs> a euphemism? That the, that- was that at the end or was that at the, in the credits? I can't remember. I think it's at the end, isn't it? Or is it at the credits? I don't remember now. It's not on this list that I've just mm. found here, but mm. I seem to remember it being at the end, but perhaps perhaps it isn't. Or perhaps it's one of those movies that doesn't really have a load of credits at mm. the end. Who, who knows? Uh, but yeah, there's there's loads of stuff. But then they, they were definitely popularized by, by Marvel and by the MCU, by Marvel Studios. Daredevil has one, for example. Yeah, the Bullseye uh, Pirates one. of the Caribbean, mm. yeah, has one. A couple of the Pirates ones do, actually. And there mm. are a few yeah. of those. Well... One of them has that really important one, the the final one in the trilogy. I forget the name. Oh, of what's the, his face coming back from the well, sea? What's his face comes back mm. and she's got a kid. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Very true. That's um, a world's end. Will Turner, of course. Yes, the the memorable one, yeah. world's end. Uh, <laughs> at world's end. 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 <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, X Men: The Last Stand has oh, one as well. But God, Professor but, X Alive. Yeah. Remember we oh, talked yeah. about it last mm, week on um, our Picard spoiler special, which you can hear right now. Yes. If you subscribe, of course, to our spoiler specials. But we talked about that with the uh, you know where uh, Professor X comes back from the from the dead uh, in a body that just happens to look exactly like his. Uh, anyway, but there's loads. There's, there's absolutely loads. And you know, but since since Marvel have risen to prominence and since it became such a big thing, you know, there have been a lot of copycats. And it's interesting that the DC EU movies started out and they had some post credit stings and they kind started to dabble in that world and then I think they realised that maybe this isn't the greatest of ideas and they've kind of stopped doing it I think 
Which is the one that had the talking caterpillar? Was that Shazam? Shazam. Good Shazam. God. What? It's a very scary caterpillar, James. <laughs> he talks, or at least he projects his voice into other people's minds. Yeah. That yeah. that felt to me. In fact, I'd forgotten about that because you know, for all there, we haven't done them. They they did one at the end of Justice League, and mm-hmm. uh, they did one at the end of Shazam. Mm-hmm. Both of which were kind of blatant setups for for sequels that may never happen. Clearly, in the, in the uh, in the example of Justice League, it's not going to happen. Which was Lex Luthor uh, meeting. Joe Manginalo's Deathstroke on a luxury yacht, and that's clearly going to go nowhere. Uh, but that reminded me very much of the post-credit sting at the end of The Amazing Spider-Man, where you have Risa Fan's uh, lizard oh, yeah. meeting some shadowy dude in a prison at the end. And, you know, that those things don't really work for me. Homecoming does that a little bit as well. I have no recollection of that film. No, that was when they were talking about maybe doing the Sinister Six mm. um, as a Spider-Man spin-off. They keep trying to spin off Spidey wasn't that, films. Didn't one of the men with walking through a museum and it had like bits of the Sinister Six's gear in like... That's Amazing Spider-Man 2. I can't yeah. remember. That might have even been part of the film itself I don't rather remember. than post-credits. Again, those No films one remembers the Amazing Spider-Man films. In my head. <laughs> <laughs> Although I still wear my limited edition Amazing Spider-Man 2 trainers. <laughs> oh, those were nice. Those were really good. I was wearing them earlier today. <laughs> True story, but yeah. Oh, do you remember the the dreadful one at the end of um at the uh, at the end of uh, Kong Skull Island, where they're they, that's where they tried to expand oh, the the universe, yeah. and they have the Hiddleston. Yeah, they have Hiddleston <laughs> at the end, uh, trapped in a room being interrogated by someone, and then two minor characters from Godzilla walk in and start you know basically say, you know, you're not the only superhero in the universe or you know whatever it is so that's that's terrible but the one that the one i always think of when i think about this and i think about you know uh hubristic falls and flying too close to the sun is green lantern uh no. do you remember the the post-credit sting of green lantern I do not. which Sinestro? is it's a yeah it's sinestro turning into a baddie and getting the yellow ring and going all evil and mm. they relegated that Rather than you know setting it up through character development throughout the rest of the, throughout, throughout the movie, they just kind of throw it away at the end of the movie after most people have, will have left, and uh, it's things like that I just find particularly egregious. Isn't that a bit what they do with Mordo though in Doctor Strange? Like Chiwetel's character, like his turn to evil is a bit of a oh let's just drop this in the credits and in no way work it into the film. Yeah, I have to say that that just came to mind as well. Yeah, but he does he does at the end of the film declare that he's done with wizardry and <laughs> I am now and evil. Goes, and then he goes <laughs> big plume of smoke and then he disappears. <laughs> it's like ah, <laughs> I am done with wizardry. Was this your card? Um, <laughs> but yeah. Oh God! And Venom does it as well, where Eddie Brock interviews Woody Harrelson. Oh, That's the first time we meet Cletus Kasady. Yes, <laughs> <Mick Hucknall. laughs> he, he fell from the stars straight into Venom's arms. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god alright um, I'm, I'm going to say the best one is Ferris Bueller right I mean yeah. it's it's the one that has the most cultural impact the one people, most people remember okay so if you want to have your question read out on the Emperor podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves as at Janet not Victoria found out to her cost you can get in touch via a number of methods we're on Twitter of course at Empire Magazine use the hashtag Empire Podcast or just wait for me to panic tweet on a Thursday and then just reply to that Uh, we're on Facebook and we're on email as well podcast at empireonline.com time now to talk about this week's movie news and there is a plethora of stories 
which is good. And most of them are not awfully, oh, this this film has been pushed back, or that film has been postponed, Variety, which is great. People are committing to making movies, uh, and that can only be applauded. Hurrah! And one of those movies that they uh, have committed to make uh, was announced on May the 4th. Now, I don't know if you know this, guys, but May the 4th sounds like May the Force. So... This is just this just started this year. They just realized that this year and they've turned May the 4th into Star Wars Day uh, because May the 4th be with you sounds like May the 4th be with you. It's a brand new thing that they're just doing. <laughs> so this week it was announced on Star Wars Day that the much rumored Taika Waititi Star Wars movie is no longer a rumor. It is a real thing that will actually happen and Taika Waititi will direct a Star Wars movie and he will co-write it with Christy Wilson Cairns, the co-writer of Sam Mendes' 1917 and Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, uh, who is a fantastic writer and uh, has had quite the meteoric rise, I would Mm. say. Yeah, what a crazy year for her. Like, 1917 at the start of the year. Hopefully we'll still see night, Last Night in Soho before the end of 2020, depending on how everything goes, and to also land this gig. Um, what a mad sort of six months or so. That's uh, that's incredible. It's really exciting news. Obviously, we spoke quite a lot on the Mandalorian podcast uh with it being Taika's episode, the finale episode of, of The Mandalorian was directed by Taika Waititi, um, and about what he might bring to this. Uh, it was it was nice to get a sense of that, of how his sensibilities, the comedic sensibilities, the sort of tone that he could bring to Star Wars while still keeping Star Wars what it is. And I think that was a really nice primer, a nice taster, and they clearly were happy with what he did with that episode. There are so, certain touches in there that feel very Taika, specific scenes that feel like it has his specific stamp on them. Mm. Um, so it feels a little bit like um, when uh, Ryan Johnson was doing The Last Jedi and they were clearly really happy with what he'd done and said, here you go, you get a trilogy, you can do what you want with Star <laughs> you Wars get a trilogy. now. You, you get, get a trilogy. trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's really exciting. What are you guys thinking? Yeah, I'm I'm here for it. As uh, Obviously, I'm a big uh, Taika Waititi fan and... Um, I'm just very intrigued in what he'll do with Star Wars. I feel like it will be, like you say, a mesh of what he does and what Star Wars is. And I think from what we saw with Mandalorian, that's something he's capable. That's a line he's capable of walking. I mean, even to the point of his voice performance, he also voices a character called IG-11 in The Mandalorian. And it's much more reined in and uh, and very different to say Korg like Korg is just Taika Waititi messing around let's be honest that's why we love him but uh, but IG-11 was an actual very different much more kind of solemn character in a lot of ways and uh, and so I think that's kind of a sign of maybe things to come I'm here for it Yarp Jimbo definitely we talked about this a little bit on the spoiler special for the last episode of the mandalorian but yeah for the same reasons i think i i i love the last jedi as it was very much the first time i think a filmmaker has been allowed to put their stamp properly mm. on a star wars movie and kind of break out the template slightly in a way that you know lord miller were not uh you know they were to, and and to a certain extent um gareth edwards wasn't either but i think you know ryan was able to and if they allow taika to be taika this could be a very interesting film and i think 
now the Skywalker saga is over, they need to break away from that template and do different things within that universe. The Mandalorian has proven that it can work and that these tonal shifts can work and they can do things outside of that little sandpit. So, yeah, I think he's the man to do it. And I think, again, it's it's maybe a Lucasfilm thing. I think if he hadn't, you know, would he be, would someone with his sensibility be allowed to work on a Star Wars movie if they hadn't seen what he did in The Mandalorian? I don't know. Like, they've been very protective mm. about this stuff in the past. So I wonder whether that's the case. But I think <laughs> at this point, you know, clearly they, they've liked what he's done they've seen what he's done and they're prepared to trust him with this and yeah. honestly i genuinely hope he goes balls to the wall mental with it i just i, I would love it <laughs> i would genuinely love to see that to see like a a thor ragnarok yeah. <laughs> version of a star wars film you know as close to space balls mm. as you can get without being space balls um oh my God. genuinely i'd love that i mean the mandalorian has really opened the door Completely. for that I think yeah. and has really shone a spotlight on what you can do from Star Wars away from the Skywalker saga and away from the Jedi and away from notions of the force and fate and destiny and obviously those things are a big part of the Mandalorian as well but it's not the nuts and bolts of the Mandalorian and the Mandalorian has a has a, a unique feel as well which I think is great I, I love that um, I think Tiger's a great fit for this so I, I love that someone found a tweet that he had uh, he posted in 2017 where someone said to him oh you know I'd love to see you make a Star Wars movie one day and he, he tweeted back going I'd be fired within a week <laughs> um, <laughs> clearly he has uh, either they've seen what he can bring to the table or he's learning to play nicer with the big corporations well my thing is I don't know when the hell he's going to fit this in because mm-hmm. he's directing Next Goal Wins, which is his next film, and that's in post at the moment. And then after that, he's meant to go pretty much straight into once, you know, lockdown is lifted and films are allowed to be made again. He's going to go straight into Thor Love and Thunder, mm-hmm. uh, which is due out in 2022. So, you know, I know we talked about this a little bit on the podcast on this on the spoiler special, but not everyone can hear that, obviously. So, you know, is he going to is this a, a smaller film? This is a smaller Star Wars film. That means he could maybe have this out in December 2022, for example, um, and have two ma- ma- you know massive franchise films out the same year. Yeah, and then he's got other smaller projects that he wants to do as well, and Akira and all sorts. So how's he going? Yeah. How's he going to do all this Star Wars? Film? I mean, what would that even look like? like two Jawas outside a Sandcrawler and a kind of retelling of Waiting for Godot. <laughs> um, do you you know what I do you know what I somehow have in my head and I genuinely can't justify or explain this I'm, for some reason I feel like Taika Waititi would work really really well with a story set in the Coruscant underworld I'm I'm seeing like death sticks salesmen <laughs> all over the place like weird little bars flying Your cars Bagano starring oh yeah. my god this could be the Lansley's Bagano uh, either the origin movie or like a sort of Breaking Bad type thing in the Star Wars universe oh with Lansley's Bagano <laughs> slinging death sticks uh, yeah slinging cooking death sticks <laughs> Maybe it's about what happens when he go ho- goes home and rethinks his life, and then what his life is after that point. After that, like it, with a wave of Obi Wan's hand, he's like gone off to go and rethink his entire life. What does that do to a person? What is, where does he go from there? How much of himself has he retained? What can he take into the future? What 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 future lies for that guy? This is amazing. Huge Tiger, tantalizing Christy, question. Call us. <laughs> yes you know you know where we are we're not going anywhere we're here for the next few weeks uh on lockdown but yeah very very exciting stuff indeed uh with taika directing a star war whenever that may happen but potentially more exciting than that is the triumphant reunion of thanos and atri have you seen this so what? <laughs> yeah, absolutely true josh brunin and peter dinglidge are starring in brothers in which they will play brothers 
So it feels a little bit like a retelling of twins, this one. Uh, but genuinely, this is this is Atria and Thanos back together again, as we've all wanted. So you can only hope that they are separated at some point. So, you know, Dinklage's character is like, where is he? Help me find him. Help me find him. You know, which 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 would be good. <laughs> or or perhaps, mean, sure. perhaps his brother has like has something that has a handle on it and he can't find it and he goes, Well, help me find handle. Use boots to protect us. As Maybe God his brother is, is handle. Yes, his brother's name is Handle. That would be excellent. Yes, handle Asgard. He was supposed to protect Asgard. Again, Josh Brolin and Peter Dinklage, you know where we are. If you need any script advice, then by all means, do get in touch with us. That's exciting. I hadn't heard that. So you should have deployed that in your film fact. You might have won. <laughs> I didn't know that bit. Yep. Um, but I, uh, speaking, uh, this is a great segue. Speaking of uh, more great screen duos reuniting, <laughs> Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt are back on... You remember them from that film that hasn't come out yet. Yes. They were great. Oh, Jungle Cruise. Yes. Yes. Jungle Cruise. Jungle Cruise. Based on the world's uh, worst the, Disney ride. They're in talks to star in Ball and Chain, which is based on a comic book from the 1990s uh, written by Scott Lobdell, who was a big X-Men writer. Um, and I think co-wrote or wrote Happy Death Day. Mm, interesting. Anyway, I, I haven't read this comic myself, but it sounds really, really fun. So it's about a married couple who are on the verge of separating, uh, but then they receive superpowers that only work when they're together. <laughs> so they're forced to be essentially each other's ball and chain. And then I'm guessing along the way, guys, they learn to love each other once again. What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Spoilers. Come on. <laughs> Just saying. Um, Just saying. I mean, hopefully this is based on the two of them really genuinely having screen chemistry. They obviously get on like a house on fire in real life from all the promotional stuff we saw from Jungle Cruise. Mm -hmm. But, you know, fingers crossed that translates on screen and that could be fun. They're both fun. We like them. So, yay. I, I think I maybe struggle to buy into the concept that anybody would not want to be with Emily Blunt and also somebody would not want to be with The Rock. So they must have some kind of really good reason why those two don't get along because they mm. are the most charming people on earth. But um, but yeah, no, that sounds like fun. That sounds like fun. And they, I think they, even just from the Jungle Cruise trailer, like it, they seem to be heavily selling it on these two sparking off each other in a big sort of summary adventure blockbuster mm. um, seems to be that is the the drive of that film rather than uh, necessarily the, the the plot or the whiz bangy effects. Um, yeah. So they must be really happy and confident in what those two can bring together on the screen. Let's hope. Hey, speaking of people who are made for each other, um, Nicholas Cage is apparently going to be playing the Tiger King, uh, Joe Exotic. Hundred percent true. In a new TV show. But do you not think Joe Exotic could play Nicolas Cage? Like, he looks yes. like, like, like like Raising Arizona Nicolas Cage and Joe Exotic are basically <laughs> interchangeable. I would I would watch either of these projects. Uh, obviously, once he gets out of prison, if ever. Um, that, would be, <laughs> that would be fascinating. Spoiler there for those of you who haven't watched Tiger King. Um, but so uh, for those who haven't seen Tiger King, Joe Exotic is an eccentric, heavily mulleted, um, fabulously dressed owner of many, many tigers and his own tiger zoo. And um, to call him an eccentric would be, I think, an understatement. Um, but certainly it feels like the kind of character that only Nicolas Cage could play. I, I'm absolutely, I'm over this. I'm deeply, deeply over this, this Tiger King thing. And by the time this movie comes out, if it ever does, <laughs> so will the entire populace. And they'll be like, oh, what's this? Oh, it's Nick Cage. 
in a movie about that thing we liked two years ago. Brilliant. It's just well, yes, no, maybe, but no, no, no. Take well. off and you get the entire side from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> At least the Nick Cage factor adds a. Oh, I've got to see what he does with this role element. Exactly. I think anybody yes. else in that role taking something that was told so comprehensively in a documentary and then mm. doing a feature film version has an inherent like, what's the point of telling the story again when the doc when the documentary tells you everything mm. you need to know? But the prospect of Nick C- Nick Cage getting to plow into this absolutely insane role at least offers some kind of viability for that project. I think is this the same project that's going to have what Kate McKinnon as Carol Baskin? There was something where she was working on a I think a producer capacity as well on a project where she's going to play Carol Baskin who's one of the other major <laughs> sort of players in that in that whole situation I, yes. I wonder if that's the same Basically project what happens is uh, she turns to a life of crime and it's called Baskin's Robin oh no oh no oh. look look just as your lawyer Baskin no. Robin always knows James so please don't always find don't out them. don't you misquote um, uh, not Sorry. when we're about to talk Sonny Birch not when we're about to talk Sonny Birch uh, because this week, Peyton Reed has apparently confirmed to someone, I don't know who, I just read it on the internet and believed it, that uh, he has <laughs> he has not ruled out that Sonny Birch, a.k.a. the 617th greatest character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, might return, played once again by Walter Goggles uh, in Ant-Man and the Wasp and Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is what I'm calling the working title of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Three. Two. Ant-Man three. The Wasp 2, after extra time. Help me. <laughs> as, uh, as Elton John famously said, the Birch is back. Oh, I mean, I don't know how to feel about this news, except that I am whelmed. Yeah. I am also whelmed. You, you've... It's Sonny Birch. Yes, exactly. That's He's right. back. In... And he'll do okay. that thing that we all know and love him for. Yeah. The thing is, they don't even need a reason for him to be there because there was no reason for him to be there in Ant-Man <laughs> of the Wasp. That is they true. just write him into the screenplay. That he is was true. There, he was there to kick the plot up a gear to provide impetus mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. dramatic weight yes. and heft and chops the only the way that Walter Goggles knows how and I'm excited to have him back 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 in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you know, screw you guys and, and Yabu sucks to the haters and a middle finger to everyone Indeed. else okay right so also in news the poor John Wick is going to have an extra year to recuperate from his injuries at the end of John Wick 3 because John Wick Chapter 4 has moved to May 20. 22 uh no. which is sad and upsetting but inevitable unfortunately yeah. Uh, so yeah that's been moved back a full calendar year that said he was full pretty dinged up at the end of the last one so he probably needs the time so does this mean we don't any longer have keanu day where all the films coming out were going to be keanu Would appear not. I, I think keanu oh. day is dispersed and everything's kind of flying to the four winds so oh. but on the well, this is why this has all happened <laughs> yes, but, bloody but it lets us spread the keanu goodness out over the year helen True. so actually it keeps True. us going for longer that's true. And we can create our own Keanu Day. The the only Keanu Day we need is in our minds. <laughs> Every day is Keanu Every Day. Every day can be Keanu Day if you want it. <laughs> and besides, there's another badass human one-man army killing machine type person who has some wounds to recuperate from before they make a sequel. It's not Sonny Birch, is it? It's Sonny Birch, who <laughs> oh is coming God. back in Ant-Men and the Wasps. Anyway, no, it's uh, Tyler Rake. Because Tyler Rake may return, played, of course, by Chris Hemsworth and his tasty washboard abs in... Oh, Chris, don't objectify him. (laughs) (laughs) Extracciones, DOS. 
X2 Raction. <laughs> Maybe? Oh, no, no. Yeah. This is the follow-up to the hit Netflix movie. Netflix have said it's it's been a gangbusters barnstorming hit. And um you know, I don't want to go into spoilers for Extraction, but you know, it is interesting that they have confirmed this movie and you know whether it takes place before or after Extraction remains to be seen, but it looks like Sam Hargrave, the director, will be back on board, as indeed will Chris Hemsworth. So that's good. And Joe Russo writing the script again. And Joe Russo writing the script, yes. It, it's been barnstorming and gangbusting because Chris Hemsworth storms into the barn and busts the gangs. That's he the does. part of the film. That's pretty much the part of the film. <laughs> yeah. It's not far off. Uh, and if you want to hear us talk about that movie at great length, much longer than I anticipated that we would, uh, our Extraction Spoiler Special is up right now. It's behind the paywall. And in it, we talk to Helen and I talk to the director, Sam Hargrave. And it is a lot of fun. So check that mm-hmm. one out. What else are we going to talk about? There's so much stuff to talk about. So Sylvester this is- Stallone. Dropped a bombshell. <laughs> did, I mean, yeah. did he now? I mean, well, this okay. is the thing, isn't it? It's so, so re- what was the context of this? Because I can't even ba- vaguely remember this. He was doing a thing on Instagram as an Instagram thing, and people were asking questions, weren't they? And someone asked if we'd get another Demolition Man. And he said, and this is quite, I've just found it, I think it is coming. We're working on it right now with Warner Brothers, and it's looking fantastic. So that should come out. That's going to happen. Now, that came from Sylvester Stallone. It may sound like a soundbite from a Trump press conference and probably has, has much truth to it, but who knows? What do we think? Is there going to be a new Demolition Man? Do we need to see John Spartan at 70? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to put my, my money where my mouth is. I will pay each of you the princely sum of £2.73. Okay. Uh, or I will buy you some Taco Bell or Pizza Hut, whichever one is overdubbed more strongly first, if this movie becomes reality. Yeah. There is no way this is going to be reality. He, This sounds to me like wishful thinking in his part. It also maybe sounds to me like he was just doing an Instagram Q&A thing and just said yes. If someone had said, is there a lockup two coming? He would have said, yes, there's a lockup two. Is there a stop where my mom will shoot again? Yes, I'm working on a stop where my mom will shoot again. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that, you know, I love the first demolition, man. But I don't see how, even if it has become a bit of a cult hit over the years, it bombed. And so I don't think that there's a much of an appetite from a business point of view to revisit it. And besides, John Spartan is not why we love that film. Sly is great. We love him. But it's Wesley Simon Snipes. Phoenix. It's Simon Phoenix. And you're not going to get Sandra Bullock to come back either. And, you know, leave, Imagine leave the... Imagine if they did, though. That would be hilarious. Then I'd be on board. Yeah. If somehow they got Sandra Bullock... And Wesley Snipes to come back as Spartan Phoenix, who is some sort of um, amalgam of John Spartan and Simon Phoenix that has been cloned in a lab. Then I'd be listen. Once again, I'm just throwing out these movie ideas for free, guys. But you know, it just if they did something like that, then I'd be I'd be buying up for it. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Things that might happen. Anyway. Though, things that might happen <laughs> yeah. uh, include. Pirates of the Caribbean 6 and reports this week indicate that Disney are looking to completely and utterly reboot the franchise as in no Johnny Depp no Jack Sparrow uh, and instead they're they're courting Karen Gillan to star in this reboot big fan of Karen Gillan uh, so I would automatically mm. go and see this however I do feel a little bit like what is Pirates of the Caribbean without Jack Sparrow he was a supporting character at first he, yeah but, the, according but still to the, the best, according though, to the screenwriters he? 
No, I know he was the best. But I mean, maybe <laughs> someone else can be the best because he'd ceased to be the best. Let's be honest. A couple of films ago, yeah. at least, he had stopped being the best. So maybe it's somebody else's turn to be the best. And I can imagine Karen Gillan <laughs> doing quite well at this because she's very funny and she can, she could carry that kind of. Era, she's the best. Weirdly quite. She is the best. She's the new she's best. She's the best. And also, of course, there were loads of female pirates around at the time. I feel like she could like bring one of them to life. I mean, if you watch Black Sails, you'll know you'll know about some of them. But those are real stories. There was a pirate queen in the 1600s in Ireland who actually went and met Queen Elizabeth I. Like loads of big pirates around. And I feel like she'd be a good one to bring to life. I think having had like a run of pirates films where jack sparrow completely was the focus and it just didn't work i am perfectly fine with the idea with the possibility of a pirate film that has no jack sparrow at all that doesn't even have an equivalent character just take that concept do something completely different with it it's got enough name recognition that you can get an audience in and give it a decent sized budget but just do something completely different with it it doesn't have to have any connection to the other films and when they've tried to continue that saga beyond well even really the basically just the first one i know some people have a an affection for two and three as well but i think beyond that nobody is particularly rooting for for mm. what comes next in that iteration of uh, mm. of the series so and if you're going to sort of trade things up johnny depp not in the best place right now and maybe not the best idea to keep having heavily johnny depp centric films especially in a franchise you deeply deeply love at the same time then bringing in karen gillan she's so mm. good in those jumanji movies she shows actually yeah. a really great amount of range of doing the comedy stuff doing the dance fighting between that and <laughs> nebula we've seen her play a lot of different types of roles in these bigger projects still make a big impact hold her own so if she's mm. leading a franchise it feels like it's time for her to mm. lead a franchise she's made a massive really good impression um in a couple of really significant blockbuster franchises as a supporting character so i'd love it if she was the lead i think that would sound that sounds really good i was just thinking about you know i i, I think i've only seen at world's end once Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I love the original movie. The original movie is fantastic. And yeah, is. two, I was just thinking about two, Dead Man's Chest, is great for a number of reasons. It's, it's flawed and it's a bit all over the place. But I remember watching that movie. If you, if you, were, if you cast your mind back, it had an incredible cliffhanger. And oh, yeah. uh, some great stuff with Davy Jones and really good stuff, really good action sequences. And yeah, it was fun. There's great stuff in all of the first three and even some bits and pieces of, of fun in the fourth and fifth. Um but they, it just became so overcomplicated. And I know that that was something that was in, intentional on the part of Elliot and Rossio. They, they wanted to kind of create these fantastically Baroque plots, but it just got so wearisome to watch and keep track of who was, who was crossing who. And, you know, it got wearisome. But, um, but yeah, the, the basic idea of pirates and the Caribbean, like who doesn't love those two things? They're great. I'm more fan of the Caribbean than I am of pirates, if I'm honest. Well, okay. Yeah, sure. Fine. Yeah. Bags is it? In in the uh second film especially, uh the Davy Jones CGI, I remember seeing that and just being mm. absolutely wowed by it. And I think it really stands up. You see sort of clips from that film and and those effects are really incredible. There's a really fun set piece in the second one as well that's Johnny Depp on a big on a big wheel thing yeah. on a tropical island. That I remember being really fun. So there's 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 good stuff in those. There's a great three way sword fight between him and Orlando Bloom and Jack Davenport, I think, <laughs> in the second one. Um and there's some interesting stuff. And then the third one, I guess I've only seen it once, so I don't I just remember it being really disappointing. And then four or five were films that happened. 
The third one does have my favourite shot of the trilogy. I think it's in the third one with um, Tom Hollander uh, walking down the stairs while the ship basically explodes in a flurry of cannon um, balls around him. That's an amazing, amazing, beautiful shot. God, do you remember the Paul McCartney cameo in Five? Yikes. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Make it stop. That was fun. That was a bad thing. That was fun. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, so exciting. That's, this, this is just rumour. File under rumour for, uh, for the time being about Karen Gillan in Pirate 6. Uh, equally, file under rumour about Nev Campbell in Scream 5. Uh, she has said this week that she's had conversations with the directors of that film, Radio Silence, who, uh, who directed the great Ready or Not, last year's fantastic uh, comedy horror. And mm-hmm. they're making Scream 5. And Sidney Prescott may or may not return. And I have to say, this makes me worried. It makes me worried for for one of two reasons. One, either she's going to return to be bumped off at the beginning um, in Drew Barrymore-esque style, which mm-hmm. would just be wrong and obviously wouldn't validate the previous four films. And of course, the end of the last one. Or, as someone suggested last night on Twitter, is she coming back to be the, the, the bad guy, to be the killer? Mm-hmm. And again, that would just be wrong. Mm. Bad. Bad screenwriting. Bad. Stop it. Smack. I I think there's fun potential here in that what they did with Scream 4 was sort of address how much the horror uh, genre had changed in the, what, 11 or so years since Scream 3. And again, now in this sort of uh, preceding decade, I feel like there's a bunch of different sort of fun things they could riff on, whether it's the whole idea of of legacy sequels in that she's back, but it's complemented by a new generation coming up, which is sort of a bit what they did in Scream 4. Um, Or even just if you're looking at horror trends, like the whole arty horror, the A24 horror. Is it that people don't really turn out for slasher films anymore and everyone's more scared of the Babadook and Black Phillip? Or I don't know, it feels like there are fun things that they could do to to play into where the genre is now. And Ready or Not was such a playful film and had so much fun with the genre while also being a really good horror film. So I kind of trust those directors because especially that franchise, having, having a film that's not directed by Wes Craven will feel will feel different and feel strange. And I think she said um, in this conversation about uh, that she might be returning, that the um, that the directors wrote her a letter basically saying how much Wes Craven means to them and talking about their relationship to, to Wes Craven's films, which sort of really helped her come around to the idea of potentially being in this film. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, for me, I, I'm, I really like the screen films. I'm not wedded to them enough that I'd be horrified at the idea of more, um, especially with these sort of really talented mm-hmm. filmmakers behind it. I'm not horrified at the idea more. I'm just horrified at the idea of maybe Sydney being killed or going bad. That's that's mm. what I'm horrified at. Yeah, mm. I, out of the options you listed, I'd definitely go for cameo. Essentially, you know, someone they call on the end of the phone for some advice, maybe. But I, I don't want a big, big role for her because I feel like those are the two options at that point. She either dies or she goes bad and I mean I don't see her returning as the hero that saves the day sort of Jamie Lee Curtis in in Halloween style simply because we've done that haven't we it feels like that's what screen three and screen four kind of were so you kind of want to move on from that and, and feel like we're getting some something new and something different this time but you know she's great love her so fingers crossed it's it's good whatever happens um hey speaking of sequels though um Bright 2? Did someone ask for this when I wasn't looking? I, I thought we all agreed that we weren't going to ask for this one. Didn't we Didn't we take a pact on that? What the hell, guys? Come on. What's What's happening with Bright 2? I, I still haven't seen Bright 1. I just couldn't bring myself. No one would blame you. But um, yeah, Louis Leterrier is set, is set to direct. David Ayer has stepped back and Will Smith and Joel Edgerton are now 
apparently set to return as their cops who were a uh, human <sighs> and uh, troll. God. <laughs> orc. Yeah. An orc. It's orc. just not good. And I just, I don't understand why this is happening. I really don't. It was not a good film at all. No. After Louis Leterrier did a really good job with Dark Crystal, maybe they just make all the characters puppets? <laughs> just do it as a big you puppet show? Nothing. <laughs> oh, back on board. Netflix is open to that. This, this was clearly a film trying to set up a series. Like it's, it's The first one is very much a world-building exercise to sort of lay the foundations for an ongoing series. But it just by the end of it, you were just so weary and so bored that you just didn't care who was a magic fairy person or who wasn't. I just, no, mm-hmm. just, just no. Yeah. And this is coming from you and me, James, two people who orcs. should be massively Absolutely. in the tank for this. Well, I mean, I'm Come already on. there when there are orcs in something, you know, I'm 100% there. But also, <laughs> I feel a little bit like timing is everything. And after Onwards, I feel it's quite difficult mm-hmm. to go back to this without seeing Onwards in every scene of this. Like, oh, look, it's a centaur yeah. police. Hang on a minute. Uh, I just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it feels a little bit like Onward without any humour, sweetness or, you know, quality. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Louis, he did a great job with the Dark Crystal, Louis mm-hmm. the Terrier. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe that's what's got him back in the uh, in the Netflix. Well, not back, but maybe that's got him in Netflix's good books. And so maybe they've thrown him this. You know, for for all that the first movie was terrible, uh, it was apparently another big hit for Netflix. A lot of people saw it, or at least saw the first ten minutes <laughs> enough to uh, enough to register. So, um, so yeah, I'm not surprised that they've 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 they're making a sequel. Surprised it taken so long to get round to it. Um, but one good thing in the in the um, in the credit column is that Max Landis is not writing the script for this, so so that's a good thing. Oh, that that's actually yeah. yeah that's well, I mean, <laughs> just just playing the other side, there there is a possibility that with a slightly new direction and a more coherent approach to the mythology in this i mean it's not it wasn't a bad idea to sort of set it in that world to kind of substitute racial tensions with fantasy archetypes it's not an inherently bad idea it was just really clumsily done i think maybe with Mm. a more deft hand and with a little bit of subtlety uh because you know will smith is incredibly charismatic and joel edgerton was good in this as well i think with decent material and an actual you know maybe maybe the future could be bright Mm -hmm. Maybe oh, I see what you did there. Maybe it will be more of a do-over than a sequel, and maybe that will work. Okay, yeah. you've, maybe you've remaking Adam Sandler's The Do-Over, and Netflix have just locked into an endless cycle of remaking Adam Sandler movies and combining them with their already own movies. So we can expect Extraction meets the Ridiculous Six for Extraction Two. Oh no! But you touch murder mystery at your peril. Anyway, let's <laughs> uh, finish the new section. There's loads of other stuff to talk about. Simon Kimberg has uh, announced a, a new original script, his first since Mr. and Mrs. Smith called Here Comes a Flood. That's getting lots of people in Hollywood hot under the collar. Uh, Kate Blanchett is in talks to star in Eli Roth's Borderlands, an adaptation of the video yes, game. Blake Lively is going to produce and star. Mm. Oh, really? I, I don't... Good don't, thing, yeah. James. Is that good? James, happy? I mean... Sure. Okay. The Rooster Brothers are going to produce the live-action Hercules uh, for Disney. Uh, that was announced just after we, we put the podcast live last week, of course. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit controversial because Hercules was one of the kind of Disney 90s uh, films that wasn't a big hit at the time, but has a very, very fervent fan base. And um, the immediate reaction of people online was, oh, you better not fuck it up. So I'm. this one's going to be quite a... a one that they'll have to be quite careful about going forward, I think. It's a weird uh, take on Hercules where 
Um, he is the son of Zeus and Hera, who are happily married, and, and Zeus never plays away, and it's all cool up on Olympus. <laughs> well, this Disney but, um, after all. It is, yes, indeed. Yeah. But it also has amazing, amazing music, and they have to get the casting of the muses right to, to make that work. Gee, I wonder which which Chris are going to ask to play Hem, uh, Hercules. I <laughs> Hem, Hem Hercules. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, rumours have actually focused on Tom Holland. Tom but Holland? Pure, yeah, that's pure speculation, just to be clear. But he's meant to be like young and kind of gangly looking, right. um, even though he's super, super strong. So okay. Holland isn't actually a bad shout. And he can sing. And he can sing. And he can dance. Oh, <gasps> he could do Umbrella again. Oh, that's it. Now we're talking. <gasps> that would be a post-credit sequence to stick around for. <laughs> yes. The last thing we should talk about um, is the second weirdest thing to happen to Elon Musk mm. this week, apart mm-hmm. from naming his baby, an unpronounceable name. Uh, it is this news that he may well be filming a movie with Tom Cruise in space. <laughs> It's just, of course, of course. Yeah, sure. 100%. Definitely. Is the plan because Elon Musk sent a car into space? Is he going to send another one into space, but Tom Cruise is going to be in the car? How does this work? <laughs> yeah, it's like collateral in space. Jamie Foxx is the uh, the Uber driver who <laughs> gets Drive a call. Me to space, from- <laughs> Jamie Foxx. <laughs> yeah, gets a call from Vincent, but he's in space. <laughs> and they have to go around the moon and killing people. Listen, I, guys, I'm full of gold this week. Honestly, if I'm back for next week's show... I'll be amazed because I think Hollywood is about to snap me up. Hang on, I've just got an email. It's from Hollywood at makeyourrich.com. Yes, five-picture wow. deal. That's amazing. All they need are your bank details so they can transfer <laughs> <Yes>. the money. <laughs> I'm just doing it right now. And at the end of the show, I'm going to tell each and every one of you what I really think of you. And, uh, and that's how the show is going to end. And I will never see you losers again. Anyway, this is exciting, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, what were we talking about? Kate, uh, s- space, yes. Space. space is the final space frontier. You is may have heard of it. Genuinely exciting. Yeah, how's this going to work? We don't even know what this is for. I, I, I am, I am not part of the Elon Musk cult. Um, and there is one. If you mention him disparagingly on Twitter, you'll meet them all. Uh, but uh, you know, if he gets Tom Cruise to go into space, then I, I may forgive him slightly for being such a fucking weirdo. <laughs> Okay, well, all right. <laughs> Helen went from not being part of the cult to calling him a fucking weirdo within 15 seconds. That escalated quickly. I mean, what can I say? I like that he seems to name his spaceships after culture vessels. Uh, if you've read in any of Ian M. Banks' culture novels, you'll know that that's a very good thing. But, mm-hmm. I mean, apart he's from that... He's an Iron Man too. That's good. He's a, I mean, that's not really... Is he's it? Man, is, he, is he, though? Well, Donald Trump's in Home Alone too, so I don't really know. Yeah, that's true. He's been not great on the whole coronavirus situation he's not been good enough has he no he is not he says lots of stupid things yes Mm -hmm. but uh, uh, in terms of his partner uh, I found out the other day I am a Grimes fan Grimes is great uh, but I never realised that her first album is a Dune concept album and now I need James Dyer to listen to it it's called (laughs) Guidey Prime Guidey Prime of course being the home planet of House Harkonnen Ben and all the song names have things to do with June that I don't understand yet because oh, I've not amazing. read June. Right, I'm going to have to look this so, up. So uh, for next week, I want James to listen to Grimes' debut album, Guidey Primes, and then say whether he thinks it's as good as June. Is it as good as House Harkonnen? 
Whoever's hosting next week, remember to take James through, lad, because I'll be uh, in Hollywood lighting $50 bills by a swimming pool. That's what I'll be doing. Uh, right, that is it, I think, for the movie news section. It is time now for this week's guest. It is Tom McCarthy, who is the Oscar-winning writer and director of Spotlight, which picked up the Best uh, Picture Oscar a couple of years ago, of course. Uh, and then he's been one of those people who's been a little bit hard to pin down over the years. He started out as an actor. You may have seen him in things like the, the Final season of The Wire and uh, 2012 uh, but he's also a great writer and director with films like The Station Agent and The Visitor and Win Win and of course the aforementioned Spotlight under his belt as well he's a difficult man to predict but even so no one could have expected that his next movie would have been a kids film that ended up on Disney Plus and it is a very charming I hadn't seen it when we reviewed it on the show a couple weeks ago very charming very fun Timmy Failure Mistakes Were Made which is a very dangerous title for uh, any director to attempt but luckily, <laughs> very few mistakes were made during the uh, the course of the production, and it is well worth your time on Disney+. And uh, Tom McCarthy was very, very kind to jump on Squadcast with me uh, last week, and we had a good old chat, which he thought was more of an intervention. You might see why. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast remotely, of course, by the writer-director of Timmy Failure. Mistakes were made. Tom McCarthy, how are you, sir? Very good, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, where are you at the moment? I am uh, on Long Island, uh, outside of the city of New York, where I lived. We came out here, obviously, to get a little bit of space, a little bit of nature during this dreadful time when our city and like a lot of cities around the world are under siege. So um, yeah. dark times, but nice to be here and, and talking about something a little lighter and brighter to me. <laughs> It's it's much needed, isn't it? It's a much needed antidote. Yeah. You put this movie on and everything feels brighter for 100 yeah, minutes. Yeah, I've heard from friends and parents around the country and even some friends with, in London. I did I did a little uh, director chat back with uh, three young men from, from London uh, who watched the movie and gave me their, their real-time feedback. So <laughs> this is when you know you have – when you have time on your hands, Chris. I was, I was real-time responding to audience members around the world. Uh, <laughs> but I, but I think it is a, a little bit of a welcome relief and well timed for for all of us who are stuck inside and and, and watching all kinds of movies right now. Absolutely. What are you watching? Uh, what's what's in your oh, list? Man, I'm all over the map right now. Uh, I will say I am. You know what I'm doing for the first time in a long time is I'm catching up on television, um, mm -hmm. which I don't do a lot of, and I, I fall really far behind. I think I've decided in large part because I'm overwhelmed by how much there is that's out there. Um, so, uh, I've been doing that with shows that people were talking about two or three years ago and saying, wow, isn't that great? <laughs> so, I'm that guy who's doing it now. So Tom, we've got a recommendation for you. Have you ever heard of the show? It's called The Wire. You might like it. It's a... Ah, heard about that show. Coming up on its hundredth anniversary. <laughs> Check it out. You might get a yeah. kick out of it. Season five uh, in particular here is, is very, very good. You know, I've, I've actually heard from a couple of people who have said, uh, hey, watching The Wire again. Great work. I'm like, OK, you guys are going deep right now. If you're going back to, uh, <laughs> but I love that. I love that people go back to that. I'm actually dying to see David's new, sh new uh, series. I haven't seen it yet, um, uh, which just started, I think, on HBO. So I'm, I'm very excited to see his new stuff. Everything he does. I love David Simon. 
Yeah, he's uh, he is amazing. He is amazing. And you know, the, the talk of the wire uh, leads me to talk of Timmy failure in a strange way because your career is fascinating to me. You are a very very hard man to pin down. You know, one minute you were directing something like The Cobbler, then the next minute you're directing Spotlight. Obviously, then you're showing up in something like Twenty Twelve or The Wire. Do you have a plan or do you just roll with the punches? Do you, do you like to roll? You know, that sounded, that sounded like you I was sound, criticizing you, you but it, you yeah. sounded like my mother, Chris. Do you have a plan? Do you She's have a plan, Tom? I was saying since I was 21, do you have a plan? I said, I'm no. worried about you, Tom. You, know, you should be. That's kind of my answer. Everyone should worry more about me. Finally, finally, my message is getting through. It's a big cry for help. All of my work is a cry for help. Um, uh, no, my plan is to find things that excite me. Look, I started as an actor um, in this business. Um, I don't do it as much. Whenever I get the chance, whenever someone will deem to hire me um, <laughs> or give me a shot or my schedule permits, I love acting. I still think it's super fun. It affords me the chance to work with other great actors and directors mm-hmm. and writers. And I just see that as a privilege. You know, I don't do it as much. Uh, then it's sort of I started writing more and more um, right out of grad school. Um, because I had time on my hands and I loved writing and uh, I realized uh, I could do it. And then, of course, the directing was born of that. So it's always a balancing act with me. And, and I think in terms of the, the projects I choose, it's just what I'm excited about at the time. You know, I, I some directors, I think, really, really map out their careers and think about their legacy. I, I don't do that. I think uh, it's in the life's too short category. I try to find things that excite me, that I'm passionate about, that I think are a challenge that something new is always exciting to me and I go after it. Uh, sometimes I hit, sometimes I miss. I think that's the game. Uh, mm-hmm. Some films are going to appeal to others uh, more than others. And so it's always, um, uh, you know, I, I think my, my motto is just keep working, keep finding what's exciting and keep working with good people, uh, collaborating mm-hmm. with people that I respect uh, uh, um, and, and like. So far, I've been able to do that in almost all my projects, and I, I feel very fortunate about that. In, in terms of that, in terms of that approach, uh, Timmy Failure fits right in in the way because it's, it's interesting that this is your first film since Spotlight, which obviously, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, won, won a couple of Oscars, did pretty well, <laughs> did pretty yeah. well, and and the expectation would have been that you would then have immediately moved on to more films like Spotlight. Instead, your first film as a director is this really strange, really weird, funny, deadpan, surreal uh, movie aimed at kids. I know that you had, you'd been working on this before Spotlight even came into your life, but was that that, that 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 contrast? It does does sound a little weird to me, Chris. I'm not going to lie. Do you have a plan, Tom? I'm suddenly seeing it in a stark light. This feels more like an intervention than it does an interview. And I, I thank you, sir. Um, no, uh, you know, it's a really good question. I didn't know Timmy would be my next movie. I had worked on Timmy long before spotlight and, um, and actually after spotlight, I went and directed the first couple, uh, um, episodes of that uh, TV show, the uh, 13 reasons why. Yes. So I did that right out of spotlight. Cause I needed to go work. Cause I was talking about myself and that movie for the better part of a year. Mm. And I was tired of hearing myself and I just wanted to go work. And then out of that, I was hoping to make the movie that I'm editing now, which is called Stillwater, yes. which we shot in France this past summer with Matt Damon and Kemi Cotton and the uh, mostly French crew. I just didn't have the movie ready. 
I tried to get it ready to go after Spotlight and I wasn't happy with it. And I had Timmy kind of floating around and um, I, I was I just had a, I had a window where I felt like I could do it and I was excited about it. I'd been talking with Disney about it. They'd been pushing me to make it. I'd set that up a couple years earlier and they kept saying, let's make this. And I was like, I just don't know what it is yet. It's a weird movie. And like, <laughs> I'm excited about the idea of trying to pull this off with a with a kid and is in their life and this real bear that doesn't do anything like we're used to, like most animals in movies are super cute or talk or do helpful, heroic things. I didn't want any of that. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to see if we could play with it and, and be faithful to the books. So. You know, it was just a way, it was really a question of, of timing and, and like an inspiration. And I thought, all right, I'm not going to do Stillwater now. And I have some time. And like this, I've been really fascinated by this book. And quite frankly, adapting Timmy was so difficult for me. It was such a challenge. It was so frustrating. I was like, come on, this is a kid's movie. It shouldn't be that hard. Note to self. Making movies for children is very difficult uh, and very challenging. And also because we were trying to make a movie that if you were sitting at home watching it with your child, that you would enjoy it. And we felt like animation does that so well. But in live action, we've all but given up hope for it. So I wanted mm -hmm. to make a movie that, you know, young people would see that I, the kind of Disney movies I grew up with that were live action films that I was like, oh, man, this is fun, you know, uh, or and not even Disney movies, all kind of, uh, of, of kids movies. So um, mm -hmm. I was really challenged by it and excited by it and working with this working with Mitch, Rich McBride to make total its visual effect. And mm -hmm. um, there was a lot in there for me to really bite into. And so um, it presented itself and I said, let's go do this. And then I knew I was going to roll right from that right into Stillwater, um, which sort of gave me a little bit of balance and perspective on it, maybe in terms of sort of what I was building in terms of my career. So it was also, I will say finally, you know, it's been dark times in this world. And I don't just mean mm. in the last four months or five months since this virus hit and made all our lives dreadful. But really, in the last in our country, in the last three to four years, the the, the toxicity and the and the division and and um, it's it's been really tough in our country. It's been a dark place and a dark time. Um, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on; you feel it. You feel it. And this was a really nice place to go live creatively, to mm. go up to Portland with my crew and to focus on this young man's story and his world and the world as he sees it. Um, it was it was the right thing at the right time for me. There's a piece of graffiti that's very prominent in the, throughout the film, which is "Long live the wild cards, misfits, and yeah. dabblers." Yeah. Um, and was that something that you discovered? Was that something that you wrote into the script, or or? or... It's a good question. You know, um, that is something we discovered. My production designer discovered that in Portland, that particular phrase, and he saw it spray painted. It was like. Uh, and he tracked it down and got the rights and then moved it on to our wall so we could use it because he thought this captures yeah. what we're saying here. And I'm like, absolutely. Um, and there was a lot of that in Portland. And let me speak to the Portland of it all. The books aren't set in Portland. The books are set sort of anywhere and anywhere. And when Steph and I started writing this, because he had never really written a screenplay, I'm like, look, at some point we do have to set this somewhere. <laughs> so we have to decide that. And I feel like it has to be a sort of second city, not a major metropolis that would overwhelm, but it has to be a city where this young, the single mom and her son could live and uh, has a real identity. And also is a place where a boy could have a pet polar bear and nobody would care anymore. It's just accepted. <laughs> like, and there's only a few cities. And the two that we came up with were New Orleans 
and uh-huh. Portland. We felt like those were two <laughs> cities where they're just weird enough that like anything can go down. They're, they're cities that pride themselves on their sort of otherness. And so we said, all right, let's go check out both cities. And um, we spent most, we we're going to set it in New Orleans actually, but when it came time to shoot it, I had to shoot it in summer and it was going to be horribly hot. And I didn't want to do that to the young actors. So I I said, mm. all right, let's go, let's start spending time in Portland. So Steph and I, the writer, camped out in Portland and just started, we had both had spent time there. We both loved the city and we said, let's really start understanding the city in a deeper way. And that's uh, that's how the city sort of started to influence the script in a way. Uh, that's interesting. I've, I've only been once, I, un- I understand. And there was a f- one of those fly visits that journalists do where you, uh, you, you see the airport. It's a terrific and- city, really worth checking out. Great, just great culture, great food, great music. And um Really lovely place to spend some mm. time and make a movie. It's a, I know it's a big music town. I know Peter Buck of REM lives there yeah. now. But uh, yeah. is did did that influence you? Did that that, that aspect of the city filter uh, in all of it? I mean, it, literally, you feel it in that city. It's just a hyper creative city, and I mean in every way. Yes, of course, the music scene. It's got you know, it's got a legendary music scene. Um, but you just feel it in all the little things. Like it's just a city that people take real pride in the sort of in what they do. Uh, there's a real sort of craftsmanship to that city. Everything they do, they take very seriously. The smallest cafe, you can just kind of feel it. There's a real individuality to that city. And we thought mm. a lot of that city, its personality spoke to who Timmy was. Um, mm. And I think a lot of the characters in the book, we started to model after that. For instance, Crispin, uh, who becomes Patty's boyfriend, he in the books was written as like a real kind of jerk, like just a bad mm. guy. And we, I didn't like that character as much. And so we sort of made him, we we sort of, we met someone in Portland that reminded us a lot of Crispin, just a real dude, a nice guy, a sincere <laughs> guy, a very specific guy. And it was actually my, it was actually my um locations manager in Portland, Roger. And I'm spending time with Roger. I'm like, this guy's personality is so unique. And we thought, wow, this guy would drive Timmy nuts because Timmy is so (laughs) career oriented and so dialed in. Uh, And we thought that was a different way to present Crispin. So, um, you know, uh, you know, even when, you know, when I was laying this movie out with Masa, um, Masanobu Takinagi, my cinematographer, we would just walk around Portland, just find a cafe, set up shop, and just start to talk about the movie, walk to the next cafe, and just kind of really absorb the city. It's one of my favorite parts of the process, quite frankly. It's it's amazing. I think it's going to drive tourism in Portland. When this is when this is all over, people are going to be flocking <laughs> to Portland. Uh, they should. It's a beautiful city. Absolutely. But you, you talked there about individuality, and and I think that really applies to Timmy himself and uh, and Winslow Fagley. But by the way, what an incredible name! Uh, yeah. Is is really great in this role. And one of the things I loved about this kid is how weird he is and how how. You see a lot of kids in movies in the 80s and 90s who come straight from central casting, and, and Winslow is absolutely not that. That's presumably what you were looking for. Yeah, it was a tricky role to cast. I started casting that about a year before pre-production because I knew we had to find a kid who could really capture the voice, handle the language, handle the deadpan, be a tough kid, but still be likable. It's a fine line. I find kids can be very clawing and unlikable in movies if they don't have that right balance. And I didn't want him to come off that way. He had to be a kid who could still break your heart and drive you crazy. Because that's what most kids do. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, really, we looked at a lot of young actors for that and a lot of young kids. And, and, and Winslow came in and not only did he sort of have a sense of the role, but then he instantly started to, as I was adjusting, he was getting it. And we kind of found that character together and rode those levels through the whole production. 
as we were shooting to kind of find the right emo- amount of deadpan and kind of uh, realness that there still had to be a kid under there. If it just became too much of a presentation, you'd stop mm. to care. You wouldn't believe this kid. You wouldn't, the yeah. movie wouldn't have any soul. You had to realize some of that is an artifice that he's developed over time to cope and deal with the world, to keep the world at bay, to not show his hand, to protect himself. And I think, um, you know, that, that young man could ha- handle it. And, um, mm. I think between him and his mother, talk about another great name, England's own Ophelia Levy Bond, uh, <laughs> Winslow Fagley and Ophelia Levy Bond. It sounds like a movie from the 30s, right? Like it's a, I mean, it's amazing. I was like, I just want to splash those names up there. Um, Ophelia is an actress whose work I was not aware of when I when I cast the movie. I saw a lot of great actresses in our country for it. She, as she told me, she sent a tape in sort of as we all do as actors. And the very last day of casting, I saw it and I was like, ah, oh, that's it. She just had the right amount of edge and heart and humor, and um, and I just believed her and intelligence. She's a very intelligent uh, actress, and so mm. that relationship between this single mom who's really struggling and this boy who's got an outsized imagination and a tough time coping, for me, that was that's the heart of the movie. Mm, absolutely. I mean, there's that moment. Of, you know, not to delve too much into spoilers, but this happens very early on. But there's a moment when when uh, Timmy's dad leaves we see yeah. his his father figure leave yeah. and immediately total turns up in his life yeah. and just yeah. the, the the way that he processes that psychologically is is really interesting yeah yeah and if you look very carefully the day we shot that my i was i was sort of getting everything set i had this little boy who was timmy at four ready to shoot and my production designer phil walks in and just puts down something on the table i'm like what are you because i had all the table all set and it was a little tiny wooden polar bear and I was like, oh, that's awesome. So the kid's like hearing this trauma in the background, the mother and the father fighting, the father leaving. And he's just fixated on his little polar bear and then voila, enter mm. his imagination. And, and it's one of, for me, one of my favorite moments in the movie. So how much did your experiences working with Pixar feed into this film? Um, uh, good question. Tough to gauge, right? I would say mm. that like... Uh, I, you know, it's funny. I just had a long talk to, with Pete Docter, the director of of, of Up, that I obviously worked on with him when I was there. Mm. Um, who's someone who I just grew so greatly admire and, and like as a person. And um, it, you know, we talked about the process there when I went there as a young writer. At that point, I'd only directed the station agent uh, and written. And then I went to, suddenly I was at Pixar helping him write Up, and I, I was laughing about. It. I was like, boy, Pete, I really didn't know what I was doing at that time. And <laughs> and I go, what was I like back then? Because I just, and he goes, you know, you acted like you knew what you were doing. And I said, well, I think ultimately that's because whether it's a, a half a million dollar like Pixar or a $250 million like Up, that the process is very much the same. It's two people in a room talking about story and finding the heart and the and the through line. And like Pete made that very clear to me. It was just him and I telling the story. And it allowed me to do what I love to do, which is figure that out, figure out characters, figure out relationships, figure out dynamics. Mm-hmm. And look, I think the, the trick is with animation is they get away with a lot, right? Because yeah. of the animation, you can suddenly deal with issues in a different way. So it's a very different language. And I think it's it's tough for live action to replicate. That said, it's exactly Wanda made, wanted to make this movie because I wanted young people to start to have live action references for their films too, and not just animated. I adore those Pixar movies like everybody else and a host of other really good animated movies. Mm-hmm. But um, I wanted them to start to have live action. I think it's very different when a mother yells at her child in a live action film than it is in animation. I think you feel it differently and you experience yeah. it differently. And 
I wanted to take a crack at that. I also loved the uh, the nod to Up in uh, Timmy yeah. Failure. Uh, yeah. Just uh, at the uh, when I'm watching it at the cinema in floods of tears because it's the married life segment as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know that was a little. I was doing that, and I'm like, oh yeah, I think we could probably get this. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, Disney, Pixar, it's all joined up. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this intervention as much as I have. Uh, do you <laughs> have a you. plan, Tom? Now, do you have a plan? No, but I'm going to spend the rest of the day thinking about my plan, Chris. Thank you. I'll probably Tom, never write again now. Thank you, Chris. You've officially provided me with the greatest writer's block of all time. Two words, a plan. Always happy to have been of service. Uh, Tom McCarthy, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Okay, so that was Tom McCarthy. And before we get into this week's reviews, it is time to celebrate our cinemas, hashtag celebrate our cinemas, which is the section of the show in which uh, we give shout outs to cinemas that are obviously struggling around the world right now. A lot of cinemas are closed. Some of them are beginning to reopen in certain places around the world, and we'll see how that goes. And obviously, there's still lots of reports that Chris Nolan is still hopeful that Tenet will open in cinemas on July 17th and will start the sort of the the wave of people returning en masse to cinema. That remains to be seen. But as as of right now, most cinemas are closed. Most cinemas are struggling financially, especially independent cinemas. And if you can support them, then please do. So, some shout outs this week. Uh, here's one from at Brian Dupre, 15 on Twitter. He has asked us to give a shout out to his favorite independent theater, which is the in the Tampa Bay, Florida area. It's the Tampa Theater built in 1926 and still running strong. And they have they even have an organ that rises out of the ground prior to showtime. Cool. Ditto. Uh, TampaTheater.org forward slash about if you want to know more information or just go to tampatheater.org uh, for more information about them uh, Helen the next one very close yeah. to home this is very close to home so uh, at moogs underscore lummox on twitter has said can I please have a cinema shout out for my local Portrush Playhouse cinema which is also my local um it had been closed for a couple of years, but for the last three or four years, it's been run by volunteers who call it the Portrush Film Theatre. Uh, they now run it as a non-profit community-based cinema. Um, they have a real appreciation and enthusiasm for cinema and promoting film culture in the local area. They've hosted a number of charity nights and regularly show a wide selection of Irish, British and world cinema, as well as hosting directors' Q&As and showing kids' classics and lesser-seen gems like Oddball and the Penguins uh, on the big screen on Saturday afternoons. The building's been restored um it has a beautiful art deco design and it makes beautiful. it seem like a classic cinema and it is lovely it's um tiny but but one of my favorites they don't have a sort of fundraising page or anything up on their website um but if you go to their facebook um and like the portrush film theater i'm sure that will do some good and will alert you if you're in the area when they reopen so this one this next one comes from at mike 12767 i don't think that's his real name uh, and he's asked us to give a shout out, not to a cinema, but to the UK Jewish Film Festival, which has now moved mm. online at ukjewishfilm.org forward slash on demand. It's showing some great films that are not available elsewhere and the prices are really cheap. So ukjewishfilm.org. And in fact, if you have any other, any film festivals that you want us to give a shout out to that, you know, that, I know that there's a lot of some film festivals hitting YouTube and whatnot, but uh, then please do let us know. Okay, one more is a shout out to a cinema we did a live show in last year during our UK tour and it is the Dukes at Comedia down in Brighton. Great cinema. Uh, that's part mm. of the Picture House chain and they have... Uh, they have launched a Refuge Picture House membership. 
which is interesting. So Picture House Cinemas are closed at the moment, but they have teamed up with Refuge, which is the, the charity that provides safety to women and children who experience domestic abuse. And uh, basically, if you buy a membership, a Picture House membership, they will donate £10 of every West End or London membership and £5 of every membership for cinema outside London to the charity. So you can buy memberships for Picture House Cinemas by just simply going to the Picture House website, picturehouses.co.uk. Uh, also, probably worth mentioning is that Mubi are doing a GoFundMe scheme to raise money for independent cinemas to, to make sure they don't go under. They're trying to raise £100,000 for the COVID-19 Resilience Fund, uh, which is in order to support as many cinemas as possible and to keep their doors open. So if you, I don't actually have the URL to hand, unhelpfully, but uh, if you Google that, I'm sure <laughs> you can find it. Uh, but if you have any money that you can chuck their way to help some independent cinemas, that would be greatly appreciated as well. GoFundMe.com forward slash Dear Virus. That is what that is, I believe. Um, or if it isn't, go to that one as well. <laughs> uh, they have a £100,000 goal, and at the moment they are quite a way short. Uh, so if you have £100,000, so chuck it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, if you have a hundred grand, it's just lying <laughs> around your pocket. Um, I will have soon after my five-picture deal I signed with Hollywood at MakeYouRich.com. So, um, yeah, very, very, uh, very, very excited about that. And again, you know, I say this every week: if you can support, if you can dip your hand in your pocket, then please do. And uh, also, if you can support Empire, if you can buy a subscription to Empire, if you could buy Empire, we are available in news agents, and news agents are open, good and evil ones. Uh, so, if you can find your way down there or to a supermarket to pick up this month's issue, which has Wonder Woman one nine eight four on the cover, then that would be absolutely fantastic. That's on sale for another week or so. Subscriptions are available via the Empire website or greatmagazines.co.uk, and of course, you can support the podcast. Uh, as well and help us keep going by subscribing to the Spoiler Specials uh, subscription channel as well. Uh, details of how to do that are on my Twitter feed or in my pinned tweet. But basically, if you go to glow.fm forward slash Empire Film, you can pick from either a monthly subscription or an annual subscription and you will get tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of content. All right, so... Now we've talked about cinemas. Let's talk about the movies that would ordinarily be in cinemas, uh, only for this damned virus. And um, except for this week's big film, which is Becoming, which would be on Netflix anyway. It is on Netflix right now. And it is a documentary about Michelle Obama, the former first lady of the United States of America. Jimbo. Uh, yes, this is indeed the new Netflix documentary about Michelle Obama, named after her novel, Becoming. And this is kind of, I guess, a companion piece to that book, because it's essentially, it was produced during the tour of that kind of best-selling memoir that she did, which was released in 2018. Uh, and it follows her as she does a tour on that, where she does onstage Q&As with people like Oprah and Reese Witherspoon. Uh, there's footage of her from the campaign before Barack Obama was elected president. There's stuff, moments from, from her in the White House. So it gives you a kind of a look back at her and her life and her experience during this. Um, I've not read the book, uh, so I'm not sure how much of it is covered in there and how much overlap there is. What's nice about this, I think, is is the timing in the... I don't think it's news to anyone that the world has gone to absolute shit since Obama left office. And there's something about watching this where you just look back and you think, God, I've forgotten the world wasn't always utterly fucked. And actually, it was quite a nice place once. And there's a, there's a certain amount of just like seeing them in the White House and seeing like uh, Obama there with her, the fact that, you know, 
she's allowed to speak and uh you know and she's she's this incredibly bright intelligent articulate successful woman and she was then uh, she helped get him elected she was incredibly active on the campaign trail uh and had a, a very sort of active portfolio when she was first lady and it's it's interesting seeing her meet with students and the inspirational talk she gives with them and there's a, a particular scene in a church where she's meeting with a bunch of uh, older uh, black women who are telling her about their experience about what it was like to see her and Brat walk into the white house and how they never thought they would live to see that moment happen so there's lots of stuff in here to warm the cockles of your hearts there's uh there are some funny moments when she references the fact that when she's trying to get the kids out of the house uh on the day that they leave oh she's like come on guys the trump's coming we really need to move but that's funny but also i think that's this documentary's biggest problem in that it doesn't really address the big twat in the room and by twat i mean trump and it doesn't really address that like she's classy and she was never going to throw him under the bus and there's only a very sort of veiled conversation with i think some some native american students where she talks about their experiences living in this america uh but you never really get into the fact that you know the first black president was followed by a white supremacist president that's never really touched upon and i don't think and it feels missing it feels like you needed to engage with that we needed to see that and it there's an element that this is a little superficial that yes it's lovely to watch and i really enjoyed seeing it and it made me feel good and it made me realize how much i want barack obama to be my dad uh and indeed michelle obama to be my mom <laughs> but uh do you know what i mean like i i wanted to hear her talk about like what is it like to look back at the white house to look back at america and see what it became after they left office and i guess that was always too much to hope for but i feel that that is where this falls short there's no follow-through here it doesn't give you that it has that slight thing of like when you watch the Beyonce documentaries or like the Taylor Swift documentary where it's the Michelle Obama story told by Michelle Obama through her lens and her (laughs) people. Um, But with that said, I thought it touched on loads of interesting things. Like I just hearing the story from her side, hearing what it's like Mm. to be somebody who's in a sort of fairly normal relationship, then be on this huge world stage where she has to be very, very careful and controlled. And then coming out the other side of that with all of this clout and working out what to do with it. I thought there was loads of really sort of interesting perspectives on just little parts parts of that experience that I hadn't necessarily thought about before and loads of she's so funny she's really funny and like her on stage there's quite a lot of stuff of her on stage talking about the book telling different stories and it's super entertaining. Like, you could sit and listen to a talk mm, all day. She's really, really just charismatic. And she extemporizes so well. She's a fantastic storyteller and really, really compelling. So, yeah, it's great. Just just talking about, like, her first, when she first meets Barack Obama, and just it's just so beautifully told. And she's got the, this entire stadium in the palm of her hand as she talks. So it is very compelling. So, yeah, it's it, it's fun. And it's, it's, you know, has lots of lovely, warm things in it. Just, you know, I wanted the claws to come out. Yeah. Yeah. She could do stadiums, but can she do the Dukes of Comedia? I'd like to see her try that. Uh, Hell's Bells. Yeah, no, I agree with with pretty much all of that. I think Nadia Halgren, the, the director, has had a, both a very lucky break in, in that she's given all this access and she is behind the scenes and she's she's hanging out and they go to her childhood home and they, they learn how, they, how she grew up and stuff like that. Um, but also it's quite a difficult job because there's some things that she's just not going to say, she's not going to talk about, she's not going to go to town on the shitness of Donald Trump, um, who is shit. Um, and- do you find that's a strange decision? Because Barack Obama has very resolutely refused to to weigh in as no, well. No, I, th- I think I think he remembers that the office of the U.S. president is supposed to be mm. a dignified one, and I think he's been measured. He has, I think, made himself quite clear on a couple of occasions, certainly during the campaign, that he was not a Trump fan. But at the same time, he's had a bit of dignity about it, and I think Michelle 
has yeah. shared in that approach and does so here. Um, but I think also their, you know, their views come across because they're talking to young people about racism and opportunity and mm. And by implication, yeah. they're talking about people who would deny them that. So, so those bits are really good. I wanted to know more about some of the young girls and the young people in this, in yeah. this film because they were really fascinating. And um, and she's really great with them as well. I mean, it's not just stadiums she's connecting with. It's tiny groups of people who just come to talk to her, and she comes to listen to them, um, which I thought was really moving as well. So it was incredibly moving. I mean, I was basically in tears throughout most of this. Um, but that's not to say it's like a great, insightful, mind-changing, hmm. you know, um, biography. Yeah. If, if you don't like her, this will not change your mind. If you do like her, this will not change your mind. Um, mm. But it is a reminder that once there were people who were intelligent and growing up and sensible in charge, and that maybe that's something we should think about trying again. It, it makes 2016 feel oh, like God, a million it? years ago. Honestly, oh, it's absolutely insane that it feels, it genuinely feels like another world. Uh, and it's kind of depressing to think of how little time ago it was. Mm. I, 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 you do feel bowled over by her as a, as a person. I think it's, again, easy to forget in this space of time because things have changed so radically. Just the sheer value of of that family having mm. that place having like seeing what michelle obama means to other people is incredibly emotional like all the meet and greet stuff it's um it's beautiful seeing her connect with people seeing people connect with her and seeing i think what the part of what the documentary does in sort of addressing the trump thing by not addressing it is also by showing these eight years still happened the impact of those eight years is still being felt and there's a whole younger generation who are going to grow up knowing that this is possible so whatever is happening now what the obamas managed to do is still happening that is not over so there's an element of hope there there's every possibility that one of those young girls that uh, Helen was talking about, or showing throughout the documentary, there's every possibility that one of them could be the future president of the former United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, that, that, you know, they could go on, they could be inspired by, by Michelle Obama. So the official Empire Review isn't up yet, but uh, we're all pretty much in the four-star camp, I guess, roughly. Yeah, I we're, so. there, yeah. it's, a, it's a lovely way to pass 90 minutes, unless, of course, you're uh, a being composed of purest evil. Next film is a Disney Plus movie, and it's been on Disney Plus for quite a while, and it's a tale of lovely Willem Dafoe and a, and a lovely doggy, and it's called Togo. Yeah, so this um, is the story of a, a breeder, a dog breeder, uh, Leonard Seppala, who's played by Willem Dafoe, and his wife Constance, who's Julianne Nicholson. And they have this dog that is just terrible. He's just awful. He doesn't, doesn't take instruction at all. He's weird looking. He's not big enough. They try to get rid of him. They sell him twice. And uh, he causes such mayhem for his new owners that they have to take him back and finally discover that he's actually not just a sled dog, he's a born lead dog on the sled. Cut to several years later, uh, Togo is now Seppala's top dog, um, pun intended. Um, <laughs> and the town of Nome, Alaska, where they live, is being hit by diphtheria. And someone needs to go and get the antitoxin for diphtheria and bring it back from Juno, which is about a 600-mile trip. Now, there's there's an element of um, uh, stages. You know, there's going to be a sort of a stage of different people bringing the medicine different parts of the route, but somebody has to do the toughest stage. So Seppala and Togo and the team set out, and they end up 
minor spoiler, but it's history, so whatever. Uh, they mm. end up doing the toughest and longest stretch of this desperate mission to save people's lives. So if you recently saw the Harrison Ford dog movie in Alaska, this is going to mm-hmm. give you serious deja vu. Um, it's a different <laughs> if it's, it's a different period, it's a different setting, but it's still a dog movie in Alaska, and really how many of those do we need in a year? Um, 27. At the same time, I know, right, it's, it's, a, it's a dog movie, and the dog is adorable, and um, and Willem Dafoe is very good as well, and they look like they're going to certainly die at many, many stages. So like you'll spend quite a lot of time going, <gasps> and then hopefully, who knows, they'll get Liam through. Liam Neeson turns up with some Let's bottles help. glued to his wrists. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's it's actually quite thrilling, um, and I quite enjoyed it, despite the fact that it's you know kind of silly and light and fluffy ultimately. But as a as a piece of history, it's not bad. This is, believe it or not. Directed by our old friend, the phone turned director Erickson Kaur, who no. made yes, this is this is I guess him kind of coming back after uh, that unnecessary Point Break remake. Pointless yeah. break. <laughs> Pointless, Pointless break. break. Erickson Kaur, if I'm correct in thinking, was the DP on on the 2003 Daredevil movie, which is the second time that movie's been mentioned on this week's podcast. Third wow. time it gets to own the podcast, so that's maybe not do that. Oh my god! But that's exciting. So you like this film, um, Ben? I mean, yeah. No. Yes. It's fine. No. I yeah. Ish. Yeah. I enjoyed the film. I massively enjoyed the dog. I would have killed for Togo. <laughs> I would have died for Togo. I would have done terrible things just to make sure Togo was okay. Especially because you, you hop between them on this mission, but then also there are tons of flashbacks to baby Togo, tiny Togo, being a little terror, being getting up to mischief. They try and put him in a pen. He escapes from the pen and he runs away. It's great. Um, so it's super, super cute. It has a lot of heart to it. It's the sort of thing that shows you what Disney Plus movies could be because yeah. you can totally see that like a decade ago or even 15 years ago this could absolutely have been um like a theatrical disney live action movie is it eight above eight below yeah eight below yeah Yeah. man with dogs it's that sort of film that you just go i genuinely like there is value in this it's really entertaining families will really enjoy it but does it really have something that will get people out into the cinema get bums in seats and i'm not sure it necessarily does but disney plus seems like it could be a really nice home for those it's sorts a classic of disney kind of movie in the sense that they've always done these kind of live action movies about heroic animals and the like incredible uh, journey you know, incredible journey exactly and so it's 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 actually a real life incredible journey in the sense that this is really freaking incredible what they did and uh and i would not like to do that route at that time mm. it looked really really tough um but i would like to visit alaska so i guess it's it's done well somehow it's like The Revenant for kids. It's like yeah. Home Bound meets yeah. The Revenant. <laughs> it's Willem Dafoe lying in a puddle for two hours. Give him an Oscar, yeah. you bastards. Yeah, well, the dog drags him along and takes him home. <laughs> it's yeah. back to God's country, but they did it in a studio, so they avoided the frostbite. So, Same yeah. what? This week's, this week's episode has been talking mainly about Daredevil, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and incredibly, people freezing to death or being very, very cold in Alaska. It's, it feels almost like we planned it. But of course we didn't. So this is on Disney Plus right now, Togo. Uh, three stars for that. Uh, if you're a fan of Willem Dafoe, he is in more Willem Friend territory this time. Oh, no. Yes, please. <laughs> Thank you very much. Not my joke, um, but I'm taking it anyway. Three stars then for Togo. Uh, and that is it for this week's Bumper Size. Once again, Empire Podcast in lockdown. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be talking about... 
something to someone. I haven't figured that part out yet, but don't worry. I have six days to make it happen. So I am very confident that I can make something happen. We'll also be talking about other films, including uh, the new Jonathan Glazer film, The Fall, which is uh, launching on Mubi as of Sunday, exclusively uh, on Mubi as of Sunday. So very, very exciting times as well. Uh, but until then, until we meet again, until the suspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye. Beware the murder hornets. <laughs> it is goodbye from Ben Travis. Goodbye. I'll take five togos mm. to go, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's togo, 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 togo. Yeah, that, please. Yeah. Great, great film. 14 out of 10. Um, they're great films, Brent. And it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. I'm off to work on becoming Michelle Obama. <laughs> And it's goodbye from me. Listen, I'm going to be true to my word. I said earlier on, I'm off to do this five-picture deal with Hollywood after receiving this huge cash offer uh, earlier in the podcast. So this is my last ever Empire podcast. So it's time to burn some bridges and tell these people exactly what I think of them. James, I think you're a stinky poo head. Okay. (gasps) Helen, Helen, Mm -hmm. you smell of farts. Whoa. Ben, I can never be mad at you, Ben. (laughs) Oh, it's been really nice working with you, Chris. It's been such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Oh my God, you're the worst. Thank you for listening. This is now Ben's show. See you next week, Ben. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.